All right, hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today we have something that is really a real special treat. It's something that I haven't done in a while uh, in terms of my Shroud Wars formats. It's a real head-on debate, one-on-one uh, -on -one between uh, Jack Markwart, uh, representing the Pro Shroud side. Hey, Jack. Good morning, Dale. Welcome back, welcome back. And all as everyone's favorite Shroud skeptic, Hugh Ferry. Hey, hey Hugh, how's it going? Fine, and good afternoon from the UK. Yes, yes, it's uh, you guys are five hours ahead there or something. So, all right, cool. And also, um, by uh, popular demand, we have uh, Teddy Pappas returning as a cross examiner. So, hey, Teddy. Hello, how are y'all? Excellent. All right, cool. So, morning, Teddy. Awesome. So, so today's plan, um, if you heard my uh, Shroud panel review show part four, both Jack and Hugh were on that show. And um, I offered to bring them back uh, if they had something that they really wanted to go over in more detail. And at that point, Jack kind of said, well, I, I really want to tackle Hugh on the medieval documents. Um, I, I think there's a lot more to be said that has been covered in, in other Shroud shows, not just mine, but anywhere else on the internet. So um, I think it's really important. Yeah, let's have a one-on-one, -on -one, full-on discussion and debate about this topic in particular. And uh, that's the plan for today. So basically the format will just be, I'm going to give both Jack and Hugh their uninterrupted 10-minute openings or so to give their case. Then after that, I'm going to devote a uh, half an hour to each person. So I'll hand it to you know Jack first to grill Hugh for a whole half an hour and talk to him. Then half an hour for Hugh to grill Jack. Uh, and then after my informal discussion period. And then after that, this is where Teddy comes in as a cross-examiner. She'll be given about 10, between 10 to 15 minutes to kind of cross-examine both of the participants. So that's the plan for today. Um, but yeah, with, with that said, um, I think we should just get straight into it. And I think I'll start with Hugh first this time. Uh, usually he waits to last. So you, if, if you want to give your kind of 10 minute or less opening statement. Right. Thank you. Yes. Um, I began <clears throat> one of my papers by saying that the first reference we have to the shroud in France um, is a bull by Clement the seventh, uh, dated June, 1389, uh, in which he, uh, requests that the object, which is a representation of the shroud, uh, may be exhibited, uh, but it must be uh, exhibited uh, under the proviso that it is announced in a loud, clear voice that it is not the shroud uh, of our Lord. And also, I've got it here, uh, that none of the usual trappings due to a holy object uh, may surround it. No capes, uh, vestments, or any unusual lighting, uh, by which I, I imagine that most churches were fairly gloomy and lit by a small amount of candles, <clears throat> but relics could be lit by large large candles and much panoply, but they weren't going to have any of that. And that was, that was written by, by, by Clement VII, I think, in June 1389. Uh, and he reiterated it uh, a little later, and he also sent a similar message to all the churches round about, saying that the, um, what do we call it, sive, uh, no, uh, figuram sive representationem, 
uh, must be declared not to be the true Shroud of Christ, and it may not have any of the panoply roundabout, and that it was the duty of all the churches roundabout to go and check that this was actually happening. Um, then uh, we then, as, as far as I can see, if that was in June, it's generally thought that Darcy wrote his memorandum towards the end of 1389 or the beginning of 1390. So uh, Clement made all his instructions before Darcy wrote the memorandum. So it's not particularly relevant uh, to Clement's instructions whether Darcy sent his memorandum or not. Uh, there is some doubt about whether, whether he was in a rage and Rashti, you know, got it all copied out and then thought better of it and decided not to send it at all. Doesn't really matter. Clement operated without any reference to that particular statement, as far as I know. Uh, then the um, Darcy's chief problem was that uh, Geoffrey II was exhibiting the shroud. And as far as we can see, uh, he stated... Uh, Jeffrey II stated that uh, the Shroud was not uh, the true Shroud of Christ, exactly as the Pope had insisted. Um, and Darcy was furious that nevertheless, it was privately put about that it was the true Shroud of Christ and he wanted the whole thing suppressed, uh, which of course the Pope refused to do because he'd already said that it could be, that it could be exhibited. Nevertheless, um, after a while, uh, the the shroud stopped being exhibited and the next thing we hear about it uh, is in uh, 14 15 16 18 something like that when the uh, dean and chapter of leary ask uh, humbert de villasexel to look after their sheet uh, on which is a representation of the shroud what have they got here i've got it in wonderful medieval french i think it's a draft uh, on which is the figure or representation of the uh, Shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ, but in, in medieval French. So where we want to know, does anybody claim uh, that it is the true Shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ? And, and as far as I can see, um, the first time we come across this is in about 1472 or something like that. Um, when it's actually when the when when the new uh, dean of Leary is trying to get it back, and presumably the new dream of Leary is trying to get it back, because now that it's been touted around, possibly under the grounds that it is the 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 real shroud, they think well in that case we could have made more money out of it than we actually have done, uh, and so he's saying okay I'll take your word for it let's have it back, but of course Margaret won't give it to them. Uh, what I'll just sort of add on to this because we're discussing the whole set of, of documents that, the, that there are, uh, we find that Margaret is excommunicated for not returning the shroud to the Dean and Chapter of Leary. Well, now, if it was accepted that Margaret was in fact the true owner of the shroud, why on earth should, be ex should be, she be excommunicated uh, for not giving it back to the, um, the chapel? That seems to me an interesting point, and I don't really know what the answer is. Um, we do, of course, going back to it, we, we don't really know about the adventures of the Shroud prior to the 1480s, um, except insofar as 
Darcy tells us that the dean and chapter of uh, Leary started exhibiting it um, and, uh, and that Henry de Poitiers immediately squashed it. Now, of course, we may look at Henry de Poitiers. Am I going on too long? We can look at Henry, all Henry de Poitiers' documents that we've got. Um, stop shortly before the Battle of Poitiers. And it's my contention that the Shroud wasn't exhibited um, in Leary until after the Battle of Poitiers. Um, I think that's probably enough to be going on with. Awesome. Okay, cool. And yeah, you still had four minutes left, so you were good in terms of time. Oh, well, I, I thought I might be overrunning. <laughs> no, no, you were good. All right, cool. So at this point, I'm going to turn it straight to Jack to give, on the pro shred side, give his case. And Jack, I know you sent me slides. So do you want me to share it now or do you want me to just wait? No, I think that maybe as it comes up, uh, I, if it's okay, I'll just uh, designate what the, the, the slide is okay. that's pertinent at that time. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Go, uh, uh, so anyway, I, I come at this uh, a little bit differently than than Hugh does. I think maybe it's my experience as an attorney over forty some years, uh, and I'm not I'm not going to come into this by going right into the evidence. I think that this uh, takes a kind of a broader view so that people can understand uh, what we're talking about here. You know, the, uh, the history of the shroud uh, is in various segments. And the way that I see this discussion is on the kind of very narrow segment of the history of the shroud, uh, starting in the 1350s and primarily going through 1390 when these documents uh, are all issued. Um, I do want to say uh, something uh, about um, some of the comments that, that Hugh has made, uh, because I, I think it's better. I'm kind of a stickler for the detail, as I know he would like to be. Um, the the bull that was issued was uh, by Clement is uh, July the 28th of 1389. Uh, we don't have that bull as far as I know. I, I don't think that has survived. I think what we know about it in that bull is in a letter that uh, Clement uh, wrote to uh, Jeffrey D. Charney II uh, at that time, uh, which was a, a custom of what popes would do. If they would put up out a bull, uh, they would then uh, write letters to the uh, people that it primarily affected and then tell them uh, what was in the bull. Um, the second thing that I would want to correct or at least have a counter opinion on is that the memo of Darcy is probably written in August of 1389, that is, it does uh, post-date the uh, bull. Uh, but if you look at Darcy's memo, you can see that he's reciting historical events, things that have happened. And the last event that he refers to is uh, an event on August 5th, uh, when the king sends uh, uh, a bailey out to, um, or dispatches a bailey to seize the shroud. And he doesn't mention any events after that, even though there's an event on August the 15th, where the Bailey actually goes out there and they have kind of a to-do uh, over at the Leary Church. The third thing that I thought was a bit of a misstatement on Hughes' part was that uh, um, Clement did not, in his July bull, tell the um, Leary clergy to refer to this as a um, figure or representation. He simply says in the bull 
that uh, Jeffrey wants to put a figure in representation of the church. And this is what ends up causing the problem that develops after that, that without that specific instruction, the Lyrae clergy begins to treat the shroud as a um, genuine relic with some of their ceremonials and such. And it's the bull of uh, January 6th of 1390 that actually uh, has these uh, restrictions in it that Hugh has referred to. Uh, and I think to understand the history, you do have to make sure you have these events in order uh, and you know what is being said at every, at every stage. So I would agree with you that the Pope does not know about the Darcy Memorandum when he puts out the first bull. Um, but I think the long-running dispute is whether the Pope ever knows what's in the Darcy Memorandum uh, when he puts out his second bull. Also, <clears throat> I did I look at the previous show, and I've seen some of the um, uh, positions that uh, you know Hugh has taken uh, with regard to that. Um, and uh, I noticed that he doesn't say two things that are very important. And I think we'll get into this when we start when we actually talk about the documents. But the bull of July 28th of 1389 was issued ex certa scientia by the Pope. And I, I haven't heard that brought up. And I think it's a significant uh, fact because it means that the Pope says, I'm going to put something in this bull, but I want everyone to know that I'm issuing this bull out of knowledge which I have, out of certain knowledge which I have, and out of discretion for some reason that would benefit the church or the faith. I'm not going to tell you what that knowledge is that I have. So you don't get everything of what is happening out of the papers themselves. And secondly, when Clement issues the second bull of January 6th, and I haven't heard Hugh mention this, there's a preamble to the, the, the bull. And in that preamble, Clement says, I'm going to tell you why I'm issuing this particular bull. He gets a little vague, but he says sometimes, and when we get to the actual documents, I'll have Dale put it up, but he says sometimes things happen in the times. There's a change of times and there's a change of circumstances, and the Holy See has to change uh, something that it's done before. So this is why I'm, I'm doing this at this time. And so as historians, we have to try to find out what changed between July of 1389 and January of 1390. What was it that changed that made Clement go from what he originally said to what he said in January? And I think I know the answer to that, and I'm going to put that forward when we get to that. But again, I just, I just think it's very important that uh, if we're going to approach the subject just by grabbing documents and pulling things out of the documents and then giving personal opinions on what they are and what they say and what they mean, I think we have uh, a great challenge ahead of us, but fortunately we don't really have to do that, I don't think. History needs to be considered in context. And uh, what I've always found deficient in uh, a lot of historical writings, and particularly involving the Shroud, is just a lack of historical context. And in this age, for example, the church, these are all documents that we're going to be talking about. These are all ecclesiastical documents. They're written by a, 
pope or they're written by a bishop, every single one. <clears throat> and so this controversy involves a relic. It's a relic being the, displayed in a Catholic church. And so the most significant factor that backs this all up is ecclesiastical history, church history. What is going on in church history at that time? That's what we need to know in order to know what is motivating Pope Innocent VI in the 1350s and anti-Pope Clement VII in the 1390s. That is what is motivating uh, Bishop Henry when he writes letters. Uh, that's what's uh, motivating a papal uh, Curia in 1357 when they issue a bull that hasn't been mentioned in this discussion, but it's uh, very, very significant to what is going on historically. I think the other thing that I would like to kind of mention here in my opening is that uh, we have to put this kind of in uh, factual context as well. And that is that uh, from the standpoint, I think, of most authenticists, in fact, I, as far as I know, all authenticists, uh, we identify the Turin Shroud with the Shroud of Constantinople. Uh, and quite briefly, that is a uh, sindon. It's called a sindon, so it's a very burial cloth. It's made of linen. It has a full figure of Jesus Christ on it. And all we really know about it is that it was exhibited uh, in Constantinople in the period of 1203-1204. Uh, we have a historical record that says that, that that transpired, and then it supposedly disappeared in some way. And there are uh, more than a few opinions on what happened to it in the so-called missing years. But the, the important thing is that when the Shroud appears in their right in 1350s, the Pope at that time, and the bishops at that time know that there is a shroud from 1204 that has disappeared. When Jeffrey shows up at some point and says, I own the shroud, there's a shroud in Lyrae, they don't say, where does this come from? This is out of somebody's imagination. This is some artist who had a very clever idea and put this uh, figure on a cloth. They're Catholics. They're looking at things from a faith-based uh, point of view. And they're saying, could this be, or should this be the shroud that was the Byzantine relic that was exhibited back in 1204, and now it's just, it's come here. And so what would the Pope do at that time? Of course, he would have to talk to Geoffrey de Charnay, and de Charnay would have to give him the reasons of why he has the shroud, how it came to him. These are all the things that happened before these documents were written. And I kind of see what happens a lot of times in shroud history is it's like taking a college course and it's a college course. It's kind of an overview, you know, and uh, people are always talking about the overview and you come out of that course and you have a general idea of what happened in the history of the United States or England or Germany. Um, but you won't really have a detailed knowledge of the Civil War, you know, World War Two. For those, you need to go take courses. Uh, on those particular subjects. And this period in Shroud history, say between roughly 1350 and 1390, that's a period in and of itself. For authenticists, it's just the continuation of what we have said happened with the Shroud. And the last time we could pick it up for sure was in Constantinople, 
But this is a continuation of this. And non-authenticists, which I think Hugh has indicated he likes to be called, you know, non-authenticists, they uh, really don't have to be bothered too uh, much with the pre-Learay history because they come from science world. They're not coming from history world. And they're over there and they're saying, hey, we've got the scientific test that said the shroud didn't exist until at least 1260. So we don't really care what, you know, the authenticists are saying uh, happened to the shroud in 1204. But this is the first time, this period that we're going into, that the non-authenticists have some kind of burden of proof to sustain because they are saying that the shroud existed at this time. I know when we get through this uh, topic, and even though uh, Hugh raised some very good questions last time, that I don't think he seriously disputes that the shroud was exhibited in Learay in the 1350s. Now, if that's the case, what is the history of the shroud from a non-authenticist point of view from the time that it was created to the time that it was shown in Leary? This is a history uh, exercise that we're doing. And it's, it's easy enough for me, and most authenticists, I say the shroud showed up in Leary because Jeffrey DeCharnay was its owner and he went to Leary. So he took his property with him. Uh, we don't have to say, what is the shroud doing in some backwoods village of France in the, the 1350s? However, the non-authenticists say that somebody went out and took a cloth that's no older than 1260, put an image on that cloth, and brought it to Leroy. We wouldn't have to worry if this showed up in Paris. And uh, we could say, well, somebody who was rich enough to buy the cloth and rich enough to have somebody put this awesome image on it in some unknown way. So Jack, just uh, so you know, we're at the 1030 thing. So just wrap, wrap up what you're saying and then we'll go to the to the next portion. Okay, yeah, I was pretty much there, except that I do think that uh, what I, I haven't heard from Hugh, and I'm sure we'll hear it today, is how did the shroud then go to Leray? And the only explanation I've ever heard is that Dean Robert D. Kalak, the Dean of Leary, uh, acquired it without really any kind of explanation of how he acquired it, when he acquired it, how uh, the value that the cloth must have had, either as a real relic or a fake relic that could attract people to churches. Where did D. Kalak get the money to bring the shroud to Leray. I think we have to kind of set that table before we get to the documents that then purport to tell us what happened in Leray in the 1350s and thereafter. Awesome, thanks Jack. So, all right, cool. So at this point we come to the part that I, I know Jack is really looking forward to. Uh, so this is kind of the Q and A cross examine. So, I started with Hugh in the openings. Jack, I'll start with you here. Uh, it, you get half an hour to kind of grill Hugh point by point or whatever you want to do. Okay, well, this is kind of a, a, a grab bag this way, but let me start, Hugh, with what I just said. Could you explain to me uh, the non-authenticist point of view, uh, the history of the Torrin Shroud from the time that it was created with as much specificity as you can give to the time that it appears in Lyrae for exhibition. Yep. Uh, it, it, from our point of view, it is total supposition. Um, 
but I think it's sensible supposition, and I'll explain. Uh, well, you'll understand why it's a sensible supposition, even if you disagree with it. Uh, I've got no um, history like Robert de Clary, um, who says he saw an image of. Well, no, who says that he, he has knowledge of an image? Of there, yeah, up and down. However, this is this is uh, this is the non-authenticist position, if you like, um, and that is the the quem quiritis ceremony of which you will be familiar because it was enacted, um, first of all, uh, on Easter Sunday and later on Corpus Christi as well. The Feast of Corpus Christi after that was uh, instituted. It was enacted in literally thousands of churches, literally all over Europe. Now we know that because it's found in the use of Hereford, it's found in the use of Serum, it's found in missals and um, uh, uh, books of, uh, of liturgy all over Europe and um, I forget his name but a wonderful German wrote a seven volume book tabulating uh, four or five hundred different versions um, of the Quem Quiritis liturgy which he picked up from um, medieval uh, manuscripts all over Europe. Um, it's in one of my books and I can find it out later. So we know that this ceremony was enacted. It was enacted in churches, big ones and small ones, all over the place. It involved an, an Easter sepulchre, uh, <clears throat> which was either a, a wooden box, which you could bring out for the occasion, uh, or right up to something that was uh, built into the wall of the church. And of course, uh, those medieval churches which still remain, a lot of them still have them. You can see the Easter sepulchres built into the side of the church. So the ceremony definitely existed. Now, in a fair proportion of those liturgies, the uh, uh, three uh, clerics dressed as uh, holy women, funnily enough, go across to the uh, Easter sepulchre where they meet another cleric who's dressed as an angel. And the angel, they are, uh, the, the, the angel says, quem quiritis, who are you looking for? They say we're looking for Jesus. The angel says he's not here. But here is his shroud, normally written as a lintaminea. And the, uh, the uh, uh, clerics then take that to the high altar and display it to the congregation. Or if it's a monastery, they display it to the monks. So all over Europe, there were shrouds. That's, I think, fairly incontestable. Um, what we don't know, of course, is what they look like or whether they had anything on them. There, uh, none of these shrouds exist, except uh, possibly the uh, Shroud of uh, Besançon, which was destroyed in the French Revolution, and possibly the Shroud of Turin, which is what I maintain. So I think that this, uh, the, the Shroud was made, it's, a, it's an expensive piece of material, it's a huge piece of material. So it wasn't made for display um, in a village church. It was made uh, for display in either um, an abbey or, or a cathedral. Um, I've no idea which abbey and which cathedral, uh, I'm afraid, but that's that's the possibility that I'm aiming for. Now, for one reason or another, um, it was discontinued. One reason may have been that it got uh, terribly stained. One reason may have been that they got dirty and they washed it and the image practically disappeared. All these are, are speculation, which I, I won't go further into, but there are there are reasons for it. It was then given to somebody else. Now, it might have been given to Geoffrey de Charny, or it might have been given to the Dean of Leary. Either of them 
knew exactly what it was. It was, a, it was an old shroud that had been used for the Quemquaritis ceremony in a large cathedral. It might have been uh, Melon Cathedral. It might even have been a Carthusian um, abbey, uh, not far away from Troy itself. The name of the abbey escapes me at the moment. Was it Milan? There's another one. Anyway, uh, but, but there, there are various possibilities. But so the shroud came into their possession. Of course, they knew exactly what it was. Uh, Geoffrey Deshani certainly would not have exhibited it as, uh, as the proper shroud because he was a, he was a, a, a gallant and, and noble knight. Um, but after he died, I think, then the dean said, well, we've got this thing. Um, let's see if we can exhibit it and uh, announce that it's the shroud. So that, that would be uh, my backstory to it. Yeah, and, and you know the way I react to that is that I think it took you probably 10 minutes to explain a history that uh, is very, should otherwise be very, very compact. Um, and it's just filled with ambiguities about it. You don't know whether Jeffrey Descharnay got it. You don't say why he would have obtained it. I didn't hear you say that in the ceremonies that you're describing, there's a single one that uses a image shroud of any kind, or that an image shroud was the tradition of these particular ceremonies. This kind of sounds like Charles Freeman rebate in some way that, you know, this is the, the story that's there. And, you know, I, I, I want to emphasize that I think that on the science side of things, that the laboring order is now in the hands of the authenticists. I mean, we've got, you know, uh, some ways to go uh, to kind of explain that test and what happened in the test. But on the historical side, when you get to uh, Leary in the 1350s, I think it's far more plausible, but that will be a matter of opinion, that this shroud came to Geoffrey de Charnay sometime in his lifetime. And he was born around 1300, so he had 50 years to acquire the shroud. We've got 13 hypotheses of how he came to the shroud, and most of them involve inheritance, gifts, awards, not purchase, uh, and uh, that he's the person that founded Lyrae, founded the Lyrae Church, and that is why the shroud is there. The rest of this, as you say, compared to that, is much more speculative, and I just don't think you know, that it's credible in that way. The other part of the story, uh, which again, I hope we get to when we get to the documents, but because you brought it up, is what do you have, what do, what do you have as a non-authenticist that says that these exhibitions which took place, took place after Jeffrey's death? That fits your story very well. And it, it, by the way, it's a story that I've been involved with this for 35 years. And for 30, I think for 30 of those years, excuse me, the general presumption was that the uh, shroud was exhibited by and at the will of Geoffrey de Charnay. And then uh, with one exception, and that was Ian Wilson, uh, he could not figure out uh, why Geoffrey was silent about owning the shroud. And he struggled with that over a number of writings that he, he had, some of them in your journal, the British Journal. Uh, and so he, he switched over in the course of 40 years. He had four different versions of what transpired. Uh, 
It was uh, the wife of Jeffrey's widow who uh, exhibited. No, it was Jeffrey that exhibited. No, it was the dean in conjunction with the wife who exhibited. And I think the last uh, uh, re repeat of this was it was the dean. Uh, but there's nothing that uh, indicates that even in Darcy's memorandum, when you get to that, Darcy does not say when this happened. Even this claim that, that uh, the dean acquired the uh, cloth and exhibited it, um, he doesn't say when that happened. And there's a major, uh, again, historical context difficulty with uh, that sort of um, a proffer that you're making on that. And that is when Jeffrey de Charnay died uh, at battle on September the 18th of 1356, uh, what went with him was the 2,500 of the finest knights in France. Uh, it was a 13,000 French army that got defeated. Many of them were killed. The king was taken captive and was brought to England, and historians say that France then went into near anarchy. They didn't have the army, they didn't have the leadership, and what's documented historically is that there were brigands, uh, mainly consisting of, uh, old, of English soldiers from the, from the battle, and, Gas and from Gascony, Navarrese from Gascony, and they were roaming the French countryside and they were raiding things. Now, you would have, historically, uh, these exhibitions being uh, started in the middle of this anarchy at the end of 1356 and into 1357. That's when you would have this. You would also have it happen um, at a time that, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, we better get to it, but where uh, there's a church canon uh, 62, that says you can't do this without the approval of the Pope. So either this cleric is, uh, has gone to the Pope in some way, that's going to take time, or he's doing it in violation of the canon at that time. And then you have to have the rest of Darcy's story happen. There's got to be enough exhibitions that Bishop Henry gets irritated or concerned about what is happening. He's got to commence an investigation. He's got to find an artist who uh, confesses to having painted the image on the shroud. He's then got to convene a council of wise men of the law and theologians, and then he has to start proceedings against the dean for the dean uh, to be fearful enough to uh, take the relic and hide it. And this really all has to happen in the midst of all this anarchy that is happening and probably be completed by June the 5th of 1357. Why that date? Well, there's another document here that is rarely mentioned. I, I'm going to guess, Hugh, that you probably are at least aware of it. Um, and that is that on June the 5th of 1357, a uh, pontifical curia connected with the Pope in Avignon issues a pontifical bull. And in that bull, they deal with Lyrae, and they grant to Lyrae all these extended indulgences, which really, uh, I don't want to get digress into this now, but it kind of puts the lie to uh, everything that Darcy has said, because all these things were happening, you would not have this pontifical curia giving increased 
indulgences to Lear A. But they say that one of the ways that the um, uh, visitors to the church at Lear A can earn these indulgences is to visit the relics, plural. It says nothing about the Torin Shroud. It doesn't say to visit the great shroud that's there or the shroud that has been exhibited. So it's fairly well clear that whenever the shroud was there, at whatever time it was exhibited, it was not there as of June of 1357. And yet you would have all these things happen somewhere between Jeffrey's death in September of 1356 and this pontifical bull in June of 57. And those things just could not have happened that way. Nor, if you, if you believe Darcy, could there be pilgrims coming from all around the world to visit Lyrae and go back to their countries while the countryside is being raided and the French government cannot play, uh, provide safety to these um, pilgrims that are coming. So that, that's uh, where I think that the historical context of what happened in Lyrae, I really wonder, I mean, seriously, I know that you're arguing a non-authenticist case here, but do you seriously believe that um, the scenario laid out uh, in which the, the uh, exhibitions don't take place until after Jeffrey's death, and it's the dean that's involved in that, rather than they took place two years earlier, and they're orchestrated or at least approved by Je uh, Jeffrey, do you think that second scenario, the later scenario, actually has more plausibility than the former? That's a very good point. Um, no, I think I, I, I think it's possible now. I think you're, you're quite uh, likely correct that the Shroud was exhibited before the uh, Battle of Poitiers. But uh, that still, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jeffrey Deshani was there. Um, obviously, he was off fighting his fighting yes, his yes, yes. I don't, I don't see it um, being exhibited much before um, before thirteen fifty six. I certainly wouldn't see it being Why? exhibited in thirteen fifty. Why? Why wouldn't you see it being exhibited? You know what we know from the what we do know from the historical records, from the papal records, is that. They were locked and loaded to do the Shroud Expositions as of October the 16th of 1354. That is when Geoffrey de Charnay had chosen his six canons and they had, elect, they had elected the Lyrae Dean and all the uh, preliminaries were in place. So you, you wouldn't have had the expositions unless the canons were there to be able to run them. So they're in place by 1354. Why the why the assertion? I don't think it took place till 1356. Why couldn't they have taken place in 1354, 1355? And by the way, if they had taken place in 1355, you'd be right on the money with what Darcy said. This he said this happened about 34 years ago. You know, give or take. Yep. But that's the date that he picked. That would be 1355. Jeffrey would be alive. He might not be there on a regular basis. He has to run out to, up to northwest uh, France and, and watch what's happening there. But I just, and sometimes these statements are made and I just look at them and say, um, I don't know, but I don't think that you could say uh, that, that there'd be any valid reason for saying that the exhibitions took place uh, in 1356. And now if you are somewhat agreeing that 
they may not have taken place after Jeffrey's death, well, then why do they have to take place in, in 1356? I think I know your reason because you're troubled. I think you said in your, your last show when you talked about this, you're worried about the significance of Bishop Darcy's, uh, uh, Bishop Henry's letter in May of 1356, in which he's praising the divine cult that is at Liray. And whether or not it's just a letter that says to Jeffrey, you go, boy, we, you know, we like what you're doing there, or it has the significance that I think it has, and that is it's in referring to the divine cult, it's, rever it's referring to the cult of pilgrims who are coming to Liray and have been coming to Liray to venerate the shroud. But whatever the case, that, that basically says Henry's not he didn't conduct an investigation before that, and he's not likely to conduct an investigation after that. But if he does, it must have to be after Jeffrey has passed away. That's where I think the non-authenticists are kind of in this corner. And I think that I think their uh, uh, story would be a lot better if they would just kind of forget about the Darcy Memorandum, because the Darcy Memorandum doesn't really make a lot of historical sense, given what the historical circumstances are at the time. I could buy it myself personally if uh, the story was that, uh, and you'll probably use this in the future, but if the story was that uh, Jeffrey got busy with the war after 1354, and it's, uh, that's when the dean kind of took over and he had those exhibitions in Jeffrey's absence. Uh, uh, and, but, but what would kill that, why you can't go there, I think, is because then if Bishop Darcy got upset about it over that period of time, he wouldn't be writing that letter of praise uh, at the end of May. So it's kind of a conundrum uh, that I think that non-authenticists have about the very beginning of the history of the shroud when they finally admit the shroud exists uh, that uh, authenticists don't have. Our story is rather simple. You know, we used to have a show here in the United States that was uh, called The Tonight Show way back when, and Johnny Carson would always say, if you buy the premise, you'll buy the bit. And uh, this is, uh, there's just a false premise here. If you buy the authenticist premise that Jeffrey D. Charnay is the owner of the shroud, got his church ready for exhibitions, and was ready to go in 1354, and the exist exhibitions took place over the next couple years, and there were no problems with them, and that's why the, the uh, Bishop Henry praised them, praised Jeffrey and praised the cult that was going on. This all makes historical sense, but it kind of then puts, and when I say puts the lie to the Darcy Memorandum, I'm not trying to indicate that Darcy lied necessarily. I just think it was a bunch of poor information that he had, that now that we're studying it, it just doesn't make very much sense in historical context. Yeah, yeah, you make, you, you make some good points. Um, the, the reason why I'm, I'm hesitant to involve Jeffrey I uh, in the exhibition is because Darcy doesn't mention him. Uh, Darcy had no uh, particular affection for the Dishani family, as you can tell from his yeah. um, argument against Jeffrey II. But he doesn't say that it was Jeffrey I who produced this image. He says it was the Dean and Chapter of Leary. Yeah, but everything he's going to say about what happened there, Hugh, is negative. He's going to say that some, for his story to make sense, and remember why he's writing this 
memo that I don't think he ever sends to the Pope, but why he's putting down these thoughts. He's trying to stop the exhibitions. So his, his goal here is to make the shroud unseemly and the history of the shroud unseemly. So he has to say, this is what's going on in Leary. Somebody got a false relic. They knew it was a false relic. They wanted to make money from it. Then they put on these charades during the exhibitions where people were pretending to be healed. Uh, and uh, uh, they, and actually then an artist was found who admitted to having painted uh, the cloth. Now, how do you say that about Geoffrey de Charnay I? He's the greatest hero at that time in France. He's died at the side of the king, uh, carrying the oriflamme with him, uh, and he's one of the most respected men, and his family still survives. His son is there, and, and they've got connections. The Charnay family has connections to the Pope at that time. You know, Geoffrey Charnay II is the nephew of the, uh, or by marriage, I think, of the Pope. So why would you be surprised that Darcy didn't mention Geoffrey de Charnay in connection with a scandalous account that he is giving concerning what happened at Charny's church? Because he has no compunction about impunity de Charny's son. It's, I mean, it's obvious. He, Charny's son was three years old at that time. He's not imputing. It's, it's one thing to take some, at that point, low-level Charny knight versus Geoffrey Charnay, who was on the King's Council, the bearer of the Oriflamme, and a, a hero at Poitiers. And he's going to, 35 years after the fact, make these allegations and say Geoffrey knew of them, he was a part of them. I, he's going to leave the Charnay family out of it. He's not even really attacking Geoffrey. But he doesn't leave the de Charny family out of it. His whole point is that the young Dishani is exhibiting the shroud um, in a fraudulent manner. So why he do, he, he's not saying that Jeffrey is Jeffrey Jr. Jeffrey the second is uh, exhibiting the shroud in a fraudulent manner. He is saying the shroud is fraudulent. You know, he made, his argument is that there, that there cannot be through the gospel accounts there cannot be a shroud of this kind, and Jeffrey. Uh, Apparently, we don't know what the source is, but Geoffrey uh, apparently told the um, the bishops uh, legate in France that this is a representation or figure of the shroud, precisely so he doesn't have to get into the controversy of whether it's real. And he's just showing the shroud. He's not saying Geoffrey's making any uh, Geoffrey II's making any money from it, or he. There's not, I don't think you can fairly read Darcy's memorandum and look at it as an attack on the Charny family. And I think that is the reason why, uh, and, and it could very well be that Darcy doesn't know, it's 35 years after the fact, but if he does know that Geoffrey de Charny was alive at that time, that he's not going to mention him and he doesn't want to connect them, him to the uh, scandal that he's trying to create through his memo. It's that simple. Yeah, well, it's, it's simple enough, but I don't buy it. I, 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 you know, I think we'll just have to differ on this one. Uh, Dishani had no qualms at all about saying that the um, the young uh, Darcy had no qualms at all in saying that the young Dishani was a villain, and that's what he specifically says in his in his memorandum. He, he might have uh, decided not to send it, but if he if he's decided that the son uh, was was being duplicitous, then 
I, I don't see why he would have had any qualms at all at saying that the father was also the du duplicitous. Perhaps he would have toned down the <laughs> instructions. Now, you've sort of built up Dachani the first as being um, an enormously uh, famous and celebrated knight that no one could possibly be, say anything against. On the other hand, Dachani the second is a miserable and insignificant person who it doesn't matter uh, what you say about him. But I think yeah. in those days that the, the father and the son relationship were extremely important. You couldn't impugn the son without impugning the father. By well, I, think, well, I, I think even in those days, some excellent parents had some pretty bad children and people understood that. So I think people could understand that. But I don't, again, I don't, uh, not, and not to harp on this too much, but I just think uh, if you read the Darcy Memorandum, it's not really uh, that much of a diatribe against Jeffrey II. In fact, it would be somewhat uh, absurd because uh, his complaints about Jeffrey II is that Jeffrey may have told the legate or the pope uh, a false story about what happened back in the 1350s. But Jeffrey at that time was two or three years old. It's obvious that he did not know what happened personally at that time. And whatever he's saying, he's saying what he was told. And another fact that's hardly ever brought out uh, about this period, uh, the second period where the, the Darcy Memorandum is written, is that <clears throat> Jeffrey's widow is still alive. She lives until, I think it's 1424. But she was a very, very young girl when she married Jeffrey. She was probably only 17 or 18 years old at the time. And so she's around. Now, she lived some of these events. Jeffrey may or may not have told her uh, what the background of the, the history of the Shroud was as he knew it. I don't think he did. But she was certainly, certainly there in the village of Lyra when these events were happening. She, she knows who uh, exhibited the Shroud. She would know whether it was uh, uh, obtained by the dean or obtained by her husband. She would know whether or not there were any threats made against the, um, uh, the, the Leary dean for showing it. And she would certainly know uh, what happened with the shroud uh, after it transpired. And that kind of brings us to one other thing about the Darcy Memorandum. He ends it by saying that the dean took the shroud and he hid it for 34 years. Uh, or the Cadens hit it for 34 years. Yeah, well, it was and, hidden anyway. Yeah. And yet, it is uh, Geoffrey Ducharme uh, II who brings the Shroud forward for the second set of exhibitions. And even, um, I guess, the most notable non-authenticist historian, Andrea Nicolotti, uh, he says that he thinks that during this uh, interim period between the two uh, sets of exhibitions that the Shroud was... Uh, in Shawnee hands, it was it was taken to Shawnee lands. I mean, again, it's one of those things like how far can Darcy go? How far does he have to go? Uh, why does he say that the shroud was taken by the dean and the canons have hid it for thirty four years? How is he going to prove that if Jeffrey D. Shawnee says I well, I didn't get it from the canons, uh, I got it from my mother? And any fair historian, even a non-authenticist, is looking at the, the uh, history here and saying, in all likelihood, uh, it was sent, it was kept by the Shawnee family uh, during this period of time. So, um, again, the, the story that is told in the allegations that are made, and I noticed that you said this in the earlier program, I mean, some of them are very, very weak. Some of them are very, very questionable. Um, and I don't think it really 
maybe I think you said Hugh that uh, the Darcy Memorandum is not as important as it used to be. And back in 1900, it was a very important thing because we didn't have carbon test testing. And uh, so the idea that somebody finds this document and a bishop at that time uh, said all these things about the shroud that were of a negative nature, that kind of carried the story for, you know, a good 78 years, uh, at least until Sturt came along. Um, but but I, I don't think it really means that much today. All right, cool. So so uh, yeah, I, I think the um, the papal bulls of Clement the seventh are are the the critical thing, and the fact that the shroud is never well, it is only once in all that time um, referred to, or, or do we do we think that it was considered genuine? Now um, I'm just going to say, yeah. oh, sorry, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah? I, I'll finish off this point. So Hugh, finish your point. This is Jack's uh, time, so I'll let him get the last word if he wants it. But then after that, I want to switch it to Hugh having the reins, and he controls the show to question Jack. So okay, well, I'll mention the next bit. Uh, the next bit later. Yeah. Yes. Well, well so, yeah. so when you said I, that Darcy wasn't an out-and-out -out liar, um, you've then said that he suppressed this. He this wasn't the case. Uh, so was he telling uh, which bits of what he said uh, were not true? Do you think? Okay. Uh, if I could do this, Hugh, as I answer this, let me just go through this. That's the question that you asked in the last program, and you threw down the gauntlet, and I didn't see anybody pick it up. Uh, it kind of went on to he didn't tell the truth about it being a painting. It turned into a scientific discussion about the painting. So I wonder, Dan, if you could, uh, on the slides that I sent you, let me go to the slides here. If you don't go to the slide in which I start listing Darcy's allegations, uh, I think that would be slide nine. Mm -hmm. Okay, slide number nine, right? Okay. Slide, slide number nine. Uh, all right, and I'll just make it full screen. All right. There you go. Okay. Uh, that's not it. That's slide number one. There you go. So, so, Hugh, what I did here is I, I broke down the allegations in, in the seven allegations, okay? So what bits don't we agree with? That was your question, right? What bits? No, no, so no, here's no, the no, which Which bits were lies as opposed, yes. to, as opposed to ignorance on his part? Well, or, or and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, which parts were true. You know, maybe they're... Maybe there's some true that we don't have to have this false equivalence that, uh, you know, it's all it's all false or it's all true. Let's just start with this. We've kind of had this discussion uh, already. That is, he says that Robert D. Kalick, the Leary Dean, procured the image shroud for his own financial gain. So we've kind of had we've kind of had a discussion on here, but I believe that that's a falsehood. Uh, that it wasn't Robert DeCalic who procured this image count, uh, uh, shroud for his financial gain. Now, in addition to the arguments that I've made before, let me just add one, because so many of these allegations, I want to come uh, to this fact that, again, it seems to me it's always overlooked. Robert DeCalic remained the dean of the Leary Church until his death. He died in 1358, okay? Mm -hmm. So he was never, for any of the things that he allegedly did at Lyrae, 
He was never removed as dean. He was never defrocked. He was never disciplined in any way as far as we know. And so if you go through these allegations, though, all you have is a shopping list of all the bad things that Robert D. Kalek did and all the sins that he committed and all the church laws that he broke along the way. So if if Darcy knows in 1389, for some, in some way, that Robert D. Kalak actually procured a false relic and he did it for his own financial gain, what is Robert D. Kalak doing serving as the Leary Dean till 1358? And why, with him still serving in that capacity in June of 1357, why is a papal curia adding indulgences to the visitors that are visiting the Leary Church and thereby making more money for Robert de Kalak's staff and himself during that period of time. It, this first allegation is just the first of, of several, but it's the first one that really uh, strikes at you that it does not make sense uh, either that de Kalak procured the shroud, how would he afford to do it, what were the circumstances, let's speculate, and that he did so for his financial gain. That's a pretty serious charge. If the Pope, if he had ever sent this to the Pope, and the Pope said, we're going to have a hearing on your charges, how would Darcy prove this allegation? And why should Hugh Farry or anybody else believe in 2023 that this is true? I was only asking one question, which is, did, Dijani, uh, did uh, Darcy know that uh, Robert de Kayak had not procured the image shout for his own financial gain. Was this a deliberate lie or had he been misinformed? I, I, I don't know. I, as I said, uh, I'm willing to give Darcy a, maybe a little bit more slack than I think a lot of authenticists have given him. Um, I will simply say this, that uh, it was either a product of bad information mm -hmm. that he got from God knows where, because he doesn't say it, uh, or he did lie about it. And, you know, I, 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 that's what I call a collateral attack on the um, allegations. Uh, I, I would rather deal with the substance of the allegations themselves. But we know that uh, Darcy's objective in writing this memorandum and thinking about sending it, he, set, he sets forth his motivation. It's to end the exhibitions. That's what he says it's for. Now, why did he want to... Uh, and the exhibitions. He says in the memo, because this is a scandal to the church and it's going to lead souls away from the church. He could have honestly believed that. That might be one of his motivations. But historically, uh, this these exhibitions, as they probably had in 1350, are taking money away from monies that could be contributed as his, his cathedral. There are now locals who might have attended his cathedral who are going to make the 12-mile trip or less down to Lyrae and see a shroud while they're down there and go through that. And there are all these pilgrims that, according to Darcy, are coming from all over the world. They're taking their contributions to Lyrae. At the same time, he's got a big problem with his cathedral. It's been hit by a tornado one time, a hurricane, I think, a hurricane. Uh, it's been hit by lightning. Uh, even in 1389, when when these when the, this uh, document was put together, so you, it can't be denied that he had a financial motivation to lie. But you know, this is where, where a lot of these uh, discussions go out of control. People are 
just allocating uh, motives to other people. And I don't know that maybe Darcy deserves it because he's allocating a motive to Robert D. Kalak. He's saying that he was involved with the Shroud thing for his own financial gain. Where's his proof on that? He doesn't really have any proof. But if you didn't have that proof, would a decent person, would a decent person make that kind of an allegation against a fellow member of the clergy? And if you do, if you are going to make that allegation, where do you, uh, why don't you show what the proof would be? Why doesn't Darcy say, I've spoken to so-and-so who was, you know, with the uh, Church of Troyes at that time, and, uh, uh, you know, I've looked at records that they kept at that time. These are just flat-out, bold-faced, unsubstantiated allegations, and they do have the effect when you put them together. They have the effect of maybe saying, uh, having Pope Clement say, you know, uh, this cloth has a lot of scandal attached to it. I, I am going to stop those exhibitions like the bishop wants. Yes. So we, 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 we think, I mean, so, but you've got lists and lists of all the things that Darcy got wrong. And I want to know if he was an out and out liar all the way through. I, I would like to know that, too. But does our case here on whether the shroud, ultimately how this affects the shroud and authenticity, that's always the elephant in the room. Does it matter whether he lied or was mistaken or he had good faith or bad faith? The only thing that really matters, this is where you go down the rabbit hole in, in trout history. The only thing that matters is, is that allegation true? Is it provable? Is it credible? Uh, and I think given what we know of the circumstances, it simply is not. And I actually think that is why Darcy never sent the memo to the Pope. You know, this, the Pope wasn't going to get, in, in his dreams, in Darcy's dream, maybe the Pope was going to get this and shut down the the uh, showings. I don't think so. I think that the best he could have gotten is some kind of papal commission to look into what Darcy was charging. And at that point, they called Darcy in and they say, okay, you've made the serious allegations. Now, let's prove them. What is your proof for you to write that letter? And what is Darcy's proof? What did he have? What could he have? We don't know. So I, because of that reason, it just doesn't get any credibility. Uh, but in spite of that, the Pope nevertheless decides that we must announce in a very loud voice that this is not the Shroud and uh, do away with all the trappings that it, it was surrounded with. So Yeah, I, 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 know, I know that. And it, so your implication is it was because Darcy sent the memo and the Pope got the memo. And this goes back to the fallacy that was created by Chevalier. You know, Chevalier knew. He was a very, very smart man. Uh, I think he may have been a lawyer, Teddy. Uh, but he was a very, very smart man. And he kind of uh, evaluated the proof that he had. And he, he knew that this memorandum was just something that was found in the church uh, records or the di diocesan records, wherever they got it. They got it from the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, I believe. But he also knew there was not a papal record in which showing that uh, Clement VII received it. So why did Clement VII, so, uh, come up with this, why did Clement VII come up with this injunction then? Well, I, I, I'll get to that. Let me just finish this thought, but I'll get to that. But it involves a bit of a story, but in any event, um, so uh, Chevalier says, I know how I'm going to 
have people like Hugh Farry in the future uh, make this equivalence. He puts on the document without telling anybody that it's he's just doing. He puts end of 1389. That's how he dates the document. He doesn't tell anyone uh, why um, uh, he's putting the end of 1389. He has, and actually, he has no factual basis to do it because if you were just looking at the document, you would say um, Darcy is talking about an event that happened on August 5th, and he's not talking about any events that happened after August 5th. It's obviously uh, was written by him in August. And one other thing on that, Hugh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the Darcy Memorandum, Darcy says to the Pope, uh, I hear that you've entered an injunction of perpetual silence against me, and I hear that you've threatened me with excommunication. I don't know if that's true because I haven't received the papers yet. So that further dates it that the Pope Clement did this at the end of July, and whenever Darcy is writing this, he still hasn't gotten the confirming paperwork on this. But in any event, that is that was Chevalier's uh, canard that he used. He just put this date, and then everybody that read it said, oh, this great uh, uh, churchman historian, uh, Chevalier, uh, he's confirmed that this was written at the end of uh, 1389. So that's exactly why um, uh, Clement uh, issued his bull and said, among other things, you now have to announce it's a representation in a loud voice. So let me get... Uh, no, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say I don't think Dushani ever sent that uh, document at all. I just Darcy, want to know... Darcy, yeah. Darcy. So, uh, so why did Clement... Is yes, okay, well, <laughs> let, me, let me kind of uh, at, at least uh, explain where I'm coming from on this. Mm -hmm. I've got to go back to the 1350s, and I ask myself this question. In light of Canon uh, 62, yes. uh, uh, and I think I have a slide on that, Dale, Canon 62... That would be, yeah, which slide? It's from the fourth. It's uh, slide number two. Slide number two. Yes. Okay. It's, there you go. Okay. And I'll make it. There we go. Yeah. All right. So just kind of bear with me because I, I, I think that this answers Hugh's question. Uh, after the uh, Crusaders uh, took over Constantinople, they brought home uh, a number of relics that they had uh, stolen at that time. Uh, they got put into churches. The churches who featured them made a lot more money, had a lot more pilgrims. And then there was this demand for relics that supposedly came from Constantinople. And the nefarious out there uh, produced these relics. And they're now all over Europe. Uh, and it's because of this that Pope Innocent III at the time, he says, we've got to do something about this. This is a scandal to the church. So he convenes the Fourth Lateran Council. And in 1215, uh, the council uh, passes this uh, canon. This canon becomes church law. That's what a canon is. It's canonical law. So it becomes the, the law of the church. And it says, in the future, old relics may not be exhibited outside a vessel or exposed for sale, and that no one to presume to venerate publicly new ones, new relics. 
unless they have been approved by the Roman pontiff. In the future prelates, that is, all clerics, Catholic clerics, shall not permit those who come to their churches, causa venerationis, for the purpose of veneration, to be received by worthless fabrications, as has been done in the past. Now, this canon essentially resolved, and I, I'd invite you uh, to, to let me know, Hugh, if you're aware, I haven't been able to find anything, I haven't been aware of a uh, relic scandal after 1215. And the reason that this worked is that it put the primary onus here on prelates because this uh, scandal was really a matter of the churches acquiring uh, these uh, fabrications, then putting them in the church and having pilgrims come and make donations. And so from 1215 to, say, 1354, when the shroud appears in Luray, uh, basically that type of relic fraud had been brought to an end. This canon stayed in effect until the Council of Trent, which I think was 1563. So this was applicable to both the first and second series of um, exhibitions of the shroud in the late, in the 14th century. Now, Geoffrey de Charnay, or it doesn't matter, but um, the story that I'm telling, the version that makes sense to me, Geoffrey de Charnay uh, brings the shroud to Lyrae and tends to bring the shroud to Lyrae, and he is not going to violate this canon. And I saw, I think it was Mark Guskin in an earlier show, just more or less say, well, you know, people break laws. You know, people got a law against murder and people murder. Well, it's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is this is a church canon. It's specifically directed at uh, clerics. And uh, it's been in, in force and effect for all this time. Now, suddenly we have a awesome relic uh, that there's a proposal that it be put up for veneration in a church. So it specifically uh, refers to uh, Canon 62. I'm just jumping ahead here just for a second to show you that when Jeffrey II wanted to have the second set of exhibitions, he applied he applied to Clement VII through his legate for permission to do it. And when Darcy wrote his memorandum, he said to the Pope in this memorandum, please don't be too angry at me for continuing to harp on this subject of the shroud because I'm compelled by Canon 62. He doesn't mention it, but he quotes it. I'm, I'm compelled by Canon law to oppose uh, worthless fabrications being brought into a church. So, all these people who were involved knew about Canon 62. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're Jeffrey D. Charnay and your record, your, your record is you go to the Pope all the time. He goes to the Pope, he filed petitions for the Pope to use a portable uh, altar when he was in the field. Everything he did with the Leary Church to establish it, to get indulgences for it, to have a cemetery next to it, these were all papal petitions that he filed and he got approval. He is not going to show a shroud in the light of Canon 62 without getting papal permission. Now, I believe that he received this papal permission, and I don't have to get to the circumstantial evidence. I'll simply say in that letter that Bishop Henry sent to uh, Geoffrey de Charnay in May of um, 1356, he recites in there, we have been informed, we being the, you know, being him, we have been informed by legitimate documents that this uh, divine cult 
has been approved canonically and ritually, meaning pursuant to canon, and, and uh, the rituals that are being performed there have also been approved. So I believe that in the first set of exhibitions, they were done pursuant to uh, papal authorization. Now, there's no bull that was issued. Uh, and I just want to say that uh, the fact that a bull would not be found is not an unusual thing. I think that there were 70,000 bulls uh, in the broader term, meaning letters, uh, issued by the Avignon Papacy, and they've been able to find 2,000 of them. So, you know, finding a bull is not the easiest thing in the world. Secondly, the bull that, that Clement, that we know he issued, Clement VII, in July, I don't think that bull's been found. I don't think that we're quoting from the bull. I think we're quoting from the letter that he wrote. So, why would uh, Innocent and then ultimately Clement uh, handle it in this fashion? Well, behind everything that's going on, this is why I talk about historical context. There is, in 1354, the major issue for the papacy, major religious issue. I mean, they're involved in all sorts of civil issues, like the Black Death and the war between England and France and whatever. But the major religious issue is church unification. This is the schism of the Catholic, the Western Catholic Church with the Eastern Church. It's been going on since 1054. It's 300 years old. And what very, very few people know is that there were back-channel negotiations going on at that time. What happened was the Byzantines had had enough of the West, especially after the sack of Constantinople. But one of the Byzantine emperors, I think his name was Adronicus II, in 1328, he married a Catholic woman. He married Anna of Savoy. And she was raised a Catholic, and she had to kind of forswear her Catholic belief to become his wife. But he died 13 years later in 1341, and his son is now the emperor. He's only nine years old, and he's being raised as a Catholic by his mother. And the mother is going to the Pope at that time, Clement VI, and saying, what can you do to help me out here and help out my son? And there are negotiations that go on in which the Pope, first Clement VI, and then Innocent VI who followed him, have said, we would like your help in bringing the Eastern Church back into the fold with the Western Church. And then the emperor, the new child emperor, with his mother as his regent, he issues several bulls that basically say, I'll do it. I can get that done for you. But this is my price. You have to send men of arms and money to Constantinople because we're on the verge of at any time being conquered by the Muslims who are pretty much outside our gates. And both Clement and Innocent could not do anything at that time. The papal treasury was bare. And England and France, where they would usually get the money, they were at war and they were spending all their money on the war at that time. So he had to leave it open. He had to leave that open. But it was always the great ambition of Innocent the the sixth, and his successors, including Clement the seventh, to make this deal with John the uh, fifth, the emperor of Constantinople, because John stayed on the throne until about 1390. So he was still on the throne, 
and he had converted officially to Catholicism in about 1364. So here's what you have. If innocent, Pope Innocent were to say, I'm going to issue a papal bull, and I'm going to say that I'm allowing this veneration to happen because I find, through what Jeffrey de Charnay said to me and the proofs that he has made, I find that this was a, a, a uh, venerated Byzantine relic. It's got as much providence of the, as those 22 relics that Louis has over there in the Saint-Chapelle, those Byzantine relics. If I say that, what's going to happen is the emperor is going to demand that that relic be returned to Constantinople because it was the position of the Byzantines that that relic, their suspicion was that that relic got pilfered in the sack of Constantinople by a crusader soldier, by a crusader clerk, something like that. And if Clement at that time said, I'm not going to order the return of that relic with you, if for no other reason is I can't put that relic in danger with the Muslims at your gate, I can't do that in good conscience. If he said that, then what would likely have happened is that John would say, well, then we're not talking about church unification anymore. I'm not going to help you uh, on that issue of church unification that you want to talk about. And I don't want to get uh, into, into it, but my own belief is that the shroud came to Jeffrey through King Louis IX, and that there was an issue of whether King Louis IX, in terms of acquiring the shroud, may have committed simony with the way that went down. Because Clement, uh, Innocent could have simply said, um, uh, and he would have learned this through Geoffrey de Charnay, he could have said to the Byzantine emperor, you have no right to this relic anyway. It was a prize of war. It went to the emperors of, um, the French emperors of Constantinople, and just like the relics in the Saint-Champel, they had every right to transfer them to another party. But if he had said that, he would have had to explain how Louis came into possession of the relic that would have created a, a, a major issue uh, with Louis, with the French church, with the French clergy, with the French people. So that's what I, why I believe that the shroud was approved, the exhibition in the 1350s. And it was the same situation when Clement uh, had to approve the shroud exhibitions in 1389. Same situation, only he was in worse shape. By that time, the church was in schism in the West, and Clement VII was just the French pope sitting in Avignon, and there was now an Italian pope sitting in Rome, and they were going at each other, and they were competing with each other for uh, uh, predominance in the Catholic world. And so Clement was up against the fact that if he allowed, he couldn't announce that this was a Byzantine relic, uh, because he had the same problems as Innocent in doing so. But on top of it, if he just let it go, if he did what Innocent did, said, I'm just not going to issue a bull, then the Pope that was in Rome said, would say, who is this guy? We've got Canon 62, and he's ignoring the fact that this is being shown. So he issues a bull. But how does he not enrage the Byzantine emperor? Uh, he simply takes what probably Geoffrey de Charnay II said and said, this isn't a real relic. This is just a representation and a form of a relic. And he puts that in his bowl and he hopes that that's going to do the trick. Because, but he does not tell the, the, uh, 
the literary clergy that they have to announce that it's a representation or a figure. And then the literary clergy starts treating it like a relic. And uh, Darcy complains about this in his memo. Uh, and in all likelihood, the emperor uh, in, in Constantinople was saying, that must be a real relic and that must be our relic. We're, we want this back. So the, the, the thing comes to a head. And that is where uh, and why uh, Clement in his second bull says, now I'm going to compel the clergy out there to announce in a loud voice that this is not the true shroud, it's a representation of the shroud. And he says, though, in his um, preamble, he says, I'm doing this because conditions have changed. I can't tell you what the conditions are. So what are the conditions that changed? I would say the conditions that changed were that the Byzantine emperor had now come in in the midst of these potential negotiations to unify the church and had made uh, some demands concerning that relic, and he had to make it perfectly to satisfy him. He had to make it perfectly clear that the, the relic was just a representation. One last thing, the end of this story, which I don't think you ever tell, uh, Hugh, and that is that that bull that you're always citing was corrected. That's not the bull as it finally turned out to be. And here's what happened. That emperor, John, who had been emperor since 1341, he got deposed in April of 1390 by his grandson. So he's not there anymore. They can't unite the Catholic Church through him anymore. And so Clement goes to the bull that he had issued in January, and he corrects it. He changes it around. Now, he, he didn't change around the fact that they sometimes had to announce this representation thing in a loud voice, but he gave him a loophole. In the correction, he says, as long as you don't give a sermon, you don't have to make that announcement anymore. So what did they do? They stopped giving sermons and they didn't announce anymore that it was a representation and a figure. And he says that prohibition about wearing all those nice church clothes and making it look like it's official, you can do that now. All right, awesome. Those are, those are in the corrections to the January 6th bull. They are made uh, at the end of May. And then he issues a third bull on uh, June the 1st. And then the third bull, he increases the indulgences for people who are going to visit the shroud at that time. Okay, so, so I'm going to... Okay, so Jack, I'm just going to step in. Just out of fit. we are at the 11:30 mark. This was Hugh's time to take the reins. So Hugh, I'm going to let you take a few minutes to get the last word if you want it, and then we'll go. Uh, I'll just mention just just uh, well, no, I've got other little bits and pieces. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic story. Uh, it sounds great, and uh, it, it it could be plausible, uh, but I just think there's no evidence for it whatsoever. Um, uh, do, you, do you think it's more plausible than the uh, the, the cloth being uh, gotten from uh, Easter uh, uh, ceremonies that we're proposing? I think it's less plausible than that. We, uh, uh, that the, uh, all in the mind's eye. All about their, their, their <laughs> relics. Uh, if they wanted any relics, they'd have demanded the crown of thorns and the true cross. They weren't particularly interested in the shroud. It, it, oh, Louis, it, the, Louis the King, who has it? Yeah, it had virtually no... Uh, uh, important uh, compared to the other relics it was not very important to the byzantines it's hardly mentioned in lists of uh, the byzantine relics it comes sort of ninth or tenth down the top the top relics 
that if you're a Byzantine, you want back would be the cross and the crown of thorns. We have no evidence that they considered asking for them at all. Well, they didn't even reveal the shroud until about the year 1200. I mean, nobody even knows that the shroud, no one even knows that the shroud exists other than there is a shroud, a sindon they make reference to, but no one knows it has a figure uh, on the shroud itself. I'm going to let you guys continue on. We're, this is the informal discussion part. So continue on uninterrupted for, you know, about an hour or whatever you got, 40 minutes to an hour. Somewhere right, we'll see how it goes. Um, and, and just be, yeah. Okay. I, I, I want to bring in a couple more um, things because there's something that I changed my mind over, which I didn't think I would. But um, it's those two two little um, two little pilgrim badges. Yes. Uh, one of which, um, I mean, one's one's a badge and one's a mold. One was found in Paris and one was found just outside. Right. Right. One of them um, has a big sign saying swear on the bottom of it and that's the one that has the arms of um jean de vergy in the in the prominent position and the arms of the deshanis in the less prominent position and mm -hmm. the one that was found in paris doesn't have the word swear under it it has the instruments of the passion instead and that one has the arms of the Shani in the prominent position, and de Vergy in the in the in the in the um, in the lesser position. Yeah. Now, for a long time, uh, it was thought that uh, the one that was found in Paris and had the instruments of the Passion on it was preceded the second one, which has swear and the arms of the. De Vergy family in the most prominent position, and I went for that, and my um, my paper on academia has gone for that. But since then, I've, I've changed my mind in the same way that Ian Wilson has changed his mind, and and thinking that in fact the first one was the one that uh, has the De Vergy arms in the prominent position, and the word swear which suggests this is the shroud written underneath it. So that would apply to the first set of exhibitions. Why? Uh, because those are the ones... Why, why, do you, why do you believe that? Why do you put them in that chronological order? I heard you say that last those, program. Those are, those are the only ones we know where the shroud was actually displayed as uh, a genuine relic. Whereas... They, I'm sorry. Whereas... The, you think because you think because it has the word swear on it that somebody thinks it's a genuine relic at that time? Well, it was proclaimed. It was thought to be a genuine relic. I know. Well, ah, well, we don't know. Darcy claims that it was thought to be that it was exhibited as a genuine relic. Oh, Dar Dar Darcy. Yes. Okay. 1950s, and we we yeah. assume that he was. Uh, uh, it could be another of his lies that it was always proclaimed to be a fake. Um, but if everybody claimed it was a fake all the time, then... Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Hugh. I, I know the whole story, of course, with the badges. And I know that Ian Wilson, who, you know, originated this, yeah. um, for, I think, between book two and book three, between 1998 and 2010, uh, he was arguing that the... Um, the, I'll call it the Sharni badge, the badge that has the Sharni in provenance. 
he was arguing that that took place, um, that that was issued in conjunction with exhibitions while Sharni was alive. And then I think when they uh, initially found the Virgie badge, which came afterwards, the explanation was that uh, Jeffrey Descharnay died. The exhibitions continued on after his death for a little while, but they were the exhibitions which he had started. But during those exhibitions, uh, his wife was now uh, the head of the family. Uh, and so they issued the um, a second badge. Um, why, why would, why, what have you, what historical or other evidence have you found that, um, I know why Wilson, Wilson made the change simply, he said, because he couldn't figure out why Sharni would have been silent about, um, where he'd gotten the shroud. So he wanted to move the whole thing to after Sharni's death. But what makes you think, what's the evidence in terms of the timing on the sequence that you're putting these two badges? Why, why aren't they exactly what they seem to be? And that is that the uh, Sharni badge is the badge issued during the Sharni exhibitions while he was alive, and the Virgie badge is issued when she continues to think. Why this story that there were badges for the second set of exhibitions, and suddenly Jeffrey Jr., who is married at the time, to the niece of Henry de Poitiers, by the way, why isn't the badge uh, Charny and Poitier if it's a husband and wife? What is it in heraldry that uh, has a badge issued between a son and a mother? I've never seen that justified in order to get to that story. Uh, uh, well, uh, I have no idea. But the, okay, speculation. The, the, yeah. hy the, the, the hypothesis is, of course, that the first badge, well, mm -hmm. the second badge is a much higher quality badge, I may say, uh, in terms of its artistic uh, uh, execution, but the uh, and and the first the second badge, of course, is found as far away as Paris, whereas the first one is just a mold, and it's. I think they're both genuine. Yeah, I don't think that's the story. Um, but the one that was found in in the the second one was found in the ground in a village near Lyrae. It could have been in the ground thirty years longer than. Well, the second was only a mold, so it was almost certainly. Oh, yeah, the mold was found, right near, yeah. near near the place where where it was pertain to yeah um, but the badge I, think the pilgrim, I think the pilgrim badges are too uh tenuous other than to prove what they clearly prove and that is that there were uh, these exhibitions took place and they were of the shroud and the shroud is is shown i don't think they provide a chronology when i first saw wilson's claim that uh the second the second badge uh, is now the first, and the and the first badge is now going to be assigned to 1389. Um, I remember him saying he went to a couple of uh, experts in heraldry, uh, and they said, "Look, the, the best we can do is we can date, date both of them till the to uh, from to, say 1350 to 1400." But there's just no evidence of this. It's just this is the story and this fits your story so that's the story you're going to tell you know no, well the only evidence i know it's tenuous if you like but i can't believe it's any more tenuous than your massive great story about the, the byzantine emperors but the the fact that one of them has got shroud written on it and we know that the second exhibition uh it was not being exhibited at least formally it was not being called the shroud and so uh, by that time, perhaps the, the, the badge would be issued without the word shroud written on it. Whereas, yeah, but I mean, 
that we think that I, mean, I, I would kind of agree with you that maybe uh uh you know somebody might have some reason for putting shroud on it but it's just not convincing that uh you know that dates it in any way right now um can i just go back so we've got our your friend john the fifth was it yes it was in 1390 so we now need no longer pretend that the shroud is a representation is that right uh no because uh you would still if you as soon as you're going to drop the story that it's a representation then you're going to have to tell some other story and saying that it's real it was a real byzantine relic and you're going to have to explain then how it got from constantinople to jeffrey de charnay and you come up with whatever little problem you would have in this i think it's a major problem if you have to get into uh the the louis the ninth story you may have a problem if you're going to say it was uh, held by the Templars for a while, or it was held by the Cathars for a while. I mean, none of these stories are that particularly flattering uh, about the history of the Shroud. So I think that they, I think that number one, uh, he, there was no reason at that point in time to worry about the changing the representation because he gave them the out. He, you know, he said, just don't give a sermon anymore and you won't have to say it. So it's like a tree that fell in the forest and nobody knew it at that point, you know? Jack, uh, just so you know, some a lot of people in the audience are saying that your mic's a little bit too loud for them. If you could just talk All right. a little bit. And going forward, just so I don't have to interrupt the debate, um, just make sure you're checking the private chat and I'll leave messages for you guys. Oh, but it, yeah. it oh. I was not checking that. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. So I'll, that way I'll, I, can, I can communicate with you without interrupting the, the debate and stuff. So. Uh, uh, right. All right. All right. Cool. So continue on. And yeah, sorry to interrupt. Uh, yes. So, uh, um, but uh, it, in 1418, so what, uh, 20, 30 years later, we still find that it is a representation. It's not the original, it's, it's not a real relic. Well, who's saying that, Hugh? You know, I think the further you get out, the more irrelevant it becomes. But in 1417 or 1418, there's a contract. Yep. The contract is between uh, Margaret de Charnay uh, and uh, uh, the, the Leary Cannons. And so they're going to describe what this cloth is that uh, Marguerite's husband is now going to take over. There's a the last papal bull that had anything to do with this particular cloth says it should be called a representation or a form of the shroud. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't those parties use those terms that the Pope has? And what does the fact of what any of those people at that time in 1417 really have to do with whether the shroud is authentic or not authentic? Oh yeah, well, of course. There's always a possibility that they, that everybody thought it was a fake, but they didn't know, and it was in fact real all along. Um, yeah, right. But to me, <clears throat> to me. Yeah, but I'm just uh, saying that term, that terminology. We've had a discussion now, a long discussion about why representation and form was used back in 1389, 1390. Why should two parties, 20 years later, working out a description of what's going to be held in trust? by Margarita's husband, why shouldn't they use the words that the Pope used without them having any real significance? They know less than the Pope did at that time. 
You know, I, I just don't see that as a rubber. No, well, I, I, I see this, this um, extraordinary convoluted web of deception. Uh, it, it, it's, it's getting to be like the moon landings. So many people, um, either people thought that the shroud was authentic or they didn't think it was authentic. And it seems to me that nobody at all claimed that they thought the shroud was authentic. The Popes didn't claim it was authentic. Jeffrey II didn't claim it was authentic. I thought you said that Darcy. I thought you said that Darcy said that the first Leary Dean said it was authentic. We've got no, no. Nobody said that. It doesn't say that it was authentic. He's, okay. he's, complaining, he's complaining about the Leary Dean putting the word out that this is the actual shroud that, that Jesus was buried in. So he apparently thought it was authentic, or at least said that it was authentic. Right. The only person to claim that the shroud was authentic, and again, if you don't trust anything Darcy said. Perhaps he didn't. Uh, was was the duplicitous dean, and sure enough, the um, the the the, the, the uh, shroud was immediately was suppressed. Now it might be suppressed as um, as Jeffrey II claimed because of the marauding brigands, but the fact remains that the when the shroud was proclaimed authentic, it was suppressed. And only when the shroud was not proclaimed as authentic was it permitted to be carried on. So, so you, that's, that shroud that they have in Torah now, do you think it's authentic? No. Okay. And I do. I think, I think Teddy does. I think Dale does. I think Dale does. So when the shroud was brought forward in Leray in the 1350s, how could any of those people know whether it was authentic or not? What pope could possibly know that? Nobody. What, what, is this, uh, what is this obsession you have with uh, whether people in the 1350s were saying it was or was not real, when in all likelihood they didn't know, but in their beliefs after seeing it, the ones who saw it, the ones who came and saw it, there were certain people who formed the opinion that it was real. Those, those pilgrims did not keep coming out to Lyrae because they didn't think it was real, you know, they thought it was real and then they told other people and they came. So there were a number of people thought it was real. But what difference does that make in our debate? Are we just gonna uh, number how many people think it's real for versus the people that don't think it's real? It doesn't It doesn't get you to the resolution of the issue, does it? No, no, well, in that case, we can say that the whole of the, um, the, the, the correspondence around the turn of the 13th, 14th, 15th century is is irrelevant to the, whether the shroud is actually real or not. We then have to go to uh, other evidence, which would have to be entirely. Right, right. There's no. Well, there's no I'm, fine, I'm fine with throwing out the uh, evidence of the late 14th century if it's there, because I don't think it really talks to it. But I think that we're here because, like in uh, as I understand how Dale approaches this, uh, you as the non-authenticist have the burden of showing that uh, the shroud is medieval and you are coming forward and it seems in a very reluctant manner, but you're coming forward to um, uh, extol the uh, Darcy memorandum at that time. But I'm fine with, with, with throwing out the Darcy memorandum. I don't, I don't think it, it really is that meaningful. Oh, sorry, Dale. We've been here for hours, and uh, and we've decided that it's not really important after all. No, well, it, it, we, we, we've shown the audience why it is not important. Yeah, it's we, we, we've exploded that fraud, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I think both sides would 
Well, no, uh, the the, the non-authenticist would certainly uh, say that the that the correspondence regarding the exhibition in the 14th century uh, is not the biggest arrow in the bow. It's just one of them. Right. Uh, it, it's, like that, it's like that letter of um, Bishop Henry, which you came in uh, last time and said, oh, I think he's referring to a Mary cult. Yes. Uh, but, 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 you know, and your evidence of that is the church is dedicated to Mary, but it's not really Mary. It's Mary, the assumption, assumption of Mary. And it's also not just dedicated to Mary. It's also dedicated to the Trinity. I mean, so it's kind of got a dual dedication. But I don't see any evidence that when they dedicated churches in medieval times, you automatically then created a cult of the uh, saint that you were dedicating the church to. In fact, Bishop Henry says, I want to develop a cult of this kind myself, right in the letter. And he's uh, in the Cathedral of Troyes, which is dedicated to Saints Peter and Paul. So what does a Mary cult have to do with Saints Peter and Paul? And, you know, when... Um, well, what does the Shroud cult have to do with the, with the uh, Saints Peter and Paul? Well, I, think, I, I just think that the Shroud cult being as unusual is and, and attracting uh, pilgrims from all over the world, according to Darcy, that's where you would want to develop one in your cathedral. You know, I don't know that you want to develop a, a cult of Mary when there's, you know, a dedication and people honoring Mary and there's churches to Mary all over the place. But uh, there is... Uh, a slide, if I could ask Dale to put this up. Let's see. Yes, uh, slide number eight, Dale, if you could. That's it. So this is part of that letter. In fact, it's kind of a famous part of that letter that Pope Clement wrote to Jeffrey when he uh, issued the first bull. And this is, oh wait, I'm sorry, that's not the right one. Hold on. Just which one are we going down? Up one. Um, yes, that's not. That's not, oh, here it is, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is number eight. Is that eight you've got, Dale? Try that one. That's the one that's on at the moment. Yeah, that's the one that's on there. I, I have a, a different one. Um, this one, uh, Dale says, uh, the quote, there it is, there it is. So um, this is Pope uh, Clement. Uh, in conjunction with issuing the bull in 1389, and he says to Geoffrey II, you have entrusted the shroud to the church, quote, to increase the devotion of the people and increase the divine cult. So this is a reference, to, again, to the divine cult of Lyra. So he is saying to Geoffrey, you're going to increase that divine cult by entrusting a shroud of Jesus to the church. How does that increase a Marian cult? It increases a cult of Jesus. But, and that, the other thing is it's a divine cult. It's Mary, the last time I looked at the church's holdings, Mary was not considered divine. Have you got the Latin for that? Because he doesn't refer to the shroud. He refers I, to the representation of the shroud. 
Okay, you have been, uh, that, that's my word. I, I'm willing to change that. You have entrusted the representation of the shroud. That's not the point. Yeah. But you've entrusted that cloth that's supposed to be a representation of Christ's shroud to the church. Here's the important point, to increase the devotion of the people and increase the divine cult. How is putting that cloth into that church going to increase a Mary cult, which he happens to call a divine cult, which that would be Jesus, but if it's going to increase the cult, whatever it is, it must have something to do with Jesus, right? Not Mary. Well, well, yes, it must. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just a little. Uh, okay. It certainly can't be the cult of a picture. So maybe it's. Um, I, 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 I it can be a cult of whatever the court, whatever the church is allowing to be exhibited out there and because it's a representation of jesus shroud and a representation of jesus on the shroud the pope is saying you can put it in there and you can increase the divine cult by doing it i'm simply saying you came up with this what, what, uh, is, it cult, what is it yes okay so it, what is it a cult of the of the divine and it's going to increase that cloth with a, an image of jesus is going to increase that cult how does that have to do with Mary? Uh, th this one doesn't. Uh, well, not that I can see straight off. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, all I can suggest is since it, 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 he is uh, showing a representation of the shroud, mm. uh, that we are looking at something like the the uh, the cult of the uh, of the of the the quem queritis sort of. Uh, Resurrection um, liturgy. Uh, that, you you, you, you can say a statue or something like that, but the point is, is that these things are. This is this is at least a representation of a relic. If it was true, it would be a relic. It would be and, a representation. Uh, yes, yes. And and in in medieval times, there are many relic cults. I think Charles Freeman wrote a number yes, 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 of yes. things but, about that. This, this, this makes no sense as, as a relic cult. Well, it makes maybe to you, but it makes every bit of in, sense to me. In a, in a single sentence, Pope says, you've entrusted this picture to the shroud okay. in order to increase uh, the devotion to a relic. And I don't think that's that makes any no, sense. No, it doesn't even say relic, to increase... The divine cult, in other words, increase the, increase the number of people who are coming to see it. But, but coming to see pictures. But, picture. but instead, instead of arguing against what I'm saying, what is your argument in favor of what you're saying? How does this help show that this is a Mary cult? What is your evidence for the fact that it's a Mary cult out there? You didn't have it last time around, and I don't see you having, and this just kind of complicates the, the, that showing further. I don't know. I'd have to go back. Have to go back to the uh, to the Latin, but this, okay. this as, it, as it stands, the divine cult cannot be the cult a relic cult. It could just be, um, yes, uh, a worship of God uh, or something like that, or maybe a, the cult of the resurrection, and that may okay. in fact be what Bishop Henry was referring to earlier on. Possibly even the cult of the Trinity. I don't know. Yeah, but it cannot be a relic cult that this particular one is referring to. Well, again, I would just listening to what you say, I would say, why can't it be a relic cult? I mean, it's easy to make you know statements. It cannot be a relic cult 
it must be a Mary cult, but what is it that supports that? I'll, I'll, I'll wave the Mary cult, but it cannot be. Okay. Well, hey, I'm, I'm satisfied that you wave the Mary cult, you know. Because you can't, you can't increase a relic cult by installing a picture into your, uh, you know, if you haven't got a relic, by installing a picture into your church. I, I'm not saying I agree with the logic of what the Pope is doing. I'm simply saying the Pope knew that he was approving this representation, and he said that he thought it was going to increase the cult. So I don't know what it is. I present this to show that divine cult doesn't really pertain to Mary. Yeah, no, no, I'll have to try and work out what possible cult he could be referring okay. At least we've got that out there as a difference, whereas after the last program, it looked like, hey, you were pretty sure about that. Yes, because uh, uh, looking at the uh, the Henry of Poitiers um, letters, where there's no reference whatever to either the shroud or even a picture of the shroud. So the divine cult in those letters, I was just guessing that it must refer to the fact that the church itself was named after was was dedicated to the the, uh, the virgin mary and certainly they were virgin mary cults but, I mean, it's it, but, but two different things from the two different bishops but he, but he did he, um he Jack. did mention a cult so it was a cult of some kind if it's not a mary what what is it a cult of you know uh do you guys sorry oh, to interrupt uh t Teddy's asking if it would be okay with you guys if she just makes a very quick comment you guys sure i could use a break Tell her okay. it's not possible. It's not possible. Okay. <laughs> we can Sorry. try. <laughs> uh, Teddy, you're, you're muted. muted. Teddy, you're muted. I was trying to be so good. <laughs> my promise, but it's just too juicy. Okay. So um, with this whole divine cult, I wanted to bring in, and it's been mentioned before, the issue about uh, Bishop Poitier's a uh, letter to Jeffrey the first, how he was praising him. And you know, the, the date of this letter was just four months or so before Jeffrey the first was killed in battle. And he is praising him for um, cultivating this divine cult of this sort which to me, the of this sort speaks volumes. Now, we get into the words divine and cult. And, and you know, nowadays the word cult has all sorts of strange meanings that are nefarious, like, you know, some crazy cult. But in the traditional meaning of the word cult, it means worship. And of course, with the word divine, that means a worship of God. And if here's this bishop who's praising Jeffrey the first, um, and you know, this wasn't years before, this was, you know, shortly before he died. So then there's a question of why, according to the Darcy memo, is uh, allegedly um, Poitier being against Jeffrey the first, which obviously he would have to if he was thinking that Jeffrey the first was perpetrating a fraud on people with, you know, their with, with a fake uh, shroud of Christ. But to me, the only reason why you could call uh, what was happening a divine cult is because they're, I mean, to worship 
the shroud can only be done in a way that is consistent with the rules of Christianity, it, it's because Christ's blood is on there. It is, um, it's not a representation. It's not a cloth. There is a piece of God that was in God's body that is on that cloth. And to me, that's the only reason why you can have a divine cult of this sort surrounding the shroud and um and you know okay. so to me that that's that's the reason why okay now i'll be okay. a good girl and i'll, I'll be back to the debate wait till the, uh, all right cool yeah <laughs> thanks 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 for that teddy all right back back to you guys kind of thing so we still have about half an hour left as well for the for this portion if you guys uh, well i think jack would probably agree with me that uh, the cult well didn't usually mean just general worship it was with reference to a particular facet of the divinity um so you could have a cult a relic cult which would involve i mean it wouldn't involve sort of total enslavement in the way that the word cult means now i agree with that but it would involve a specific a special dedication to that particular facet which might be uh, a series of morning prayers or something like that, which enabled you to get perhaps indulgences for adhering to that cult. Would, would that be about right, Jack? Yeah, I, I agree with that, Hugh. And I also think that uh, that portion of that same letter that says uh, the cult has been approved um, ritually and canonically, uh, I think the, the, the mention of the word ritually, it means that whatever they're doing out there, it's a ritual and it's not a normal ritual, something that's been in the church for years and years that no one questioned, but it's a new ritual of some kind that's going out there that's been approved. And so that I think is uh, was a lot of what uh, the basis was for Darcy's objections because he describes the rituals that were going on, uh, you know, was even the... Uh, pilgrim medallions show that two bishops are holding it up and it does obviously involve the use of candles and and that sort of thing so uh, again a, a rather new ritual uh, involving the shroud which is kind of a new object of veneration makes a lot more sense than some ritual being approved uh, that's uh, in connection with uh, uh, Mary devotion Uh, from the from the uh, Henry the Henry de Poitiers mention of the word cult point of view, yes, I agree with that. From yeah. the Clement the Seventh mention of the cult point of view, uh, it cannot refer to a relic because he. Said, I agree with that. Yeah, okay. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I I agree that uh, Clement the Seventh, who's not allowing it to be called a relic isn't going to say it's in connection with a relic. I, I am I am more con, uh, focused on uh, him saying that there, uh, by putting this cloth in the church, it's going to increase whatever that's there. It's not increasing a relic. You don't increase the relic, but it is increasing the cult, which to me means the people who would come to that church to uh, see that cloth and therefore venerate it in some way. Yeah, and then... And then Yes, they'd be they'd, they'd be brought to a greater appreciation of, of the church in general. Yeah. Yes. Something like that. 
right, cool. All right, do you guys feel you you've covered all the bases? Is there anything else that you guys want to discuss with each other? Or? Uh, let me just. I want to go back and research Latin again. <laughs> the thing I just say that uh, I, I do have a slight trouble that um, the lovely everything depends, of course, on on Ulysse Chevalier because all the documents are in his books. Now, whether he was right or wrong or, or telling the truth or he's misinterpreting them, the trouble is that he wrote three books and they all have sources. The sources are not, uh, they're slightly different sources in each one. I think he wrote one in 1900, one in 1903, and another one even earlier still, perhaps. And then each one, is, the, has he, as he moved to another section, lot of sources, he said that, Document A in this source is equivalent to document B in that source, and it all gets very confusing. Um, gotcha. So it's, it's it's not easy to to, uh, to work your way around all these things. But I, so I do want to get back to them and, and have a look. And I I mean I'm just trying to follow the um, the the one that the May the nineteen uh, nineteen thirty eight the thirteen thirty eight um, bull, which I didn't think don't think i find and i didn't uh, the only reference i can see because all i've got with me at the moment is your book and you mentioned you give the references being nicolotti's book so i'll have to go and, <laughs> go and check the what, what is the object what is the object we're talking about you uh the letter granting indulgences to leary in 13 oh, yeah. or 58 yeah so, yeah that, that is in uh, that is in nicolotti's book um uh, and nicolotti Nicolai is troubled by that. I mean, uh, well, well, I can uh, imagine you would be. I'm troubled by my. Yeah, he, he, he actually says, you know, <clears throat> I think the other side is going to make much to do about this, but, uh, you know, I'll give you my version. I think that after everything that happened in Lyra, the, the papal curia just felt sorry for the Lyra church and granted these indulgences. I mean, if you've. Uh, if you've seen in my book, I don't really think that's a very good explanation, especially when um, uh, you realize that uh, uh, Dean uh, DeCalic is still alive. Uh, maybe if he had done all this wrongdoing and he died, maybe a papal curia would say, well, we've got to give the Church of Leary a brand new start. Uh, but I don't see them granting these indulgences uh, uh, and helping the Church of Leary when he's still the dean out there, if all these things that are alleged by Darcy really happen. It does sound strange. Does, do, do, do you happen to know, if, does um, uh, Andrea quote the document or does he just refer to it? I just refer to it. I, I don't know that. I, I don't know that. Uh, I've never seen the document. I think I did get that from um, uh, the reference made by... Um, I'll have to check later on, perhaps. Yeah. Nicolotti. Yeah, but it is, I, I think you agree, I can see, you can see that it's a relevant document. Uh, you know, it kind of fits in here, and it doesn't fit the uh, non authenticist point of view if you're trying to push uh, the literal um, uh, truth of the Darcy Memorandum. And we didn't have a chance to go through it, and I won't do it now, but uh, had we gone through, in each of those allegations to ask to answer a question you asked at, at the beginning, Hugh, that is what bits are true? I don't believe there's very much of the bits that are true. I mean, and by true, I mean accurate. I, they just kind of don't fit in. I do believe that Darcy gives us, uh, it's, the, it's only from him that we find out that there were pilgrims coming from all over the world. Yeah. 
um, you know, uh, that. Um, His idea uh, over the world, perhaps we, we need to explore. I mean, I don't suppose there were many. Well, he says they're not just France, so he is talking about some kind of. He is talking about some kind of foreign countries. And uh, the other thing we really didn't cover, uh, Dale, uh, just as a document, uh, that is uh, in the, um, and I think this kind of somewhat explodes the non-authenticist case this way. Uh, let me see if I can find the document real quick. Uh, yeah, document number one, Dale. <clears throat> I made it number one because it was so important. Okay, so this is back again to Pope Clement's letter, and he's talking to Jeffrey Jr., Jeffrey II, mm -hmm. and this is what he says. He says, once your father, inflamed with the zeal of devotion, caused a certain figure or representation of the shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ, which had been freely given to him, to be placed for veneration in the church of the Blessed Mary of Lyrae, which he himself founded. Now, this uh, particular um, uh, passage is, has been often quoted for the idea that uh, Jeffrey owned the shroud and it had been freely given to him. And for purposes of um, you know, our discussion today, that's certainly helpful for the authenticist case. Nicolotti has a problem dealing with this uh, because it's not freely given to the dean. It got to Lyrae, according to the Pope, through Jeffrey de Charnay. But I thought it was uh, just as important as the final words. It says, Jeffrey uh, placed it in the church for veneration. And so this is, at, this is a historical record uh, that uh, I think um, Hugh put a, out a question in the last program. It was basically, if you didn't have the Darcy Memorandum, would you be able to make a history of the 1350s for the Shroud? And you can. We did not do that today, but this is the first um, uh, document. And so I don't need Darcy to tell me, uh, we wouldn't wonder about it. We would see this letter and we would say, well, at some point, Jeffrey D. Charnay, before 1356, before he died, he put the shroud in his church and he put it there for veneration. And that would seem, in and of, of itself, to explode the allegation made by Darcy that this was done through uh, the dean. And yet this is not... Uh, quote it um, very often, and I'm not exactly sure why, um, but but there it is. I mean, uh, it's a document. It exists. It was written before Darcy's memo was written, as Hugh pointed out. Um, and uh, where where did he get this information? Uh, he could have gotten it from Jeffrey. That's very possible. Uh, but uh, he's also writing this. Uh, he, he's doing the bull. Um, so he says that he has other sources. Uh, Jeffrey's mother is the um, widow of not only Jeffrey de Charnay, but uh, her husband, who was the Count of Geneva, I think, and uh, he was Pope Clement's uncle. So I'm sure he knows Jeffrey's mother personally in some way. And by the way, her husband, uh, the Pope's uncle, he died in 1388. He only died a year before these events transpired. So I think that uh, he's got various sources. He's also got his papal curia to the extent that that's left over from Innocent's reign and whatever documents might be around there. So I don't think he's getting this information 
solely or strictly from uh, Jeffrey. And if he's putting it out there in this way, I think he knows uh, that there were these earlier um, exhibitions uh, in their right. I don't think we need uh, Darcy uh, to tell us that. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. All right, awesome. So cool. If, yeah, if you guys are, are done with this portion of the debate, we I can turn it to Teddy for the cross-examination phase. Do you guys both happy to do that or? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, cool. So, Teddy, uh, I'm going to have you for the next 10 minutes or so uh, do a cross-examination of, of Jack. And again, pay attention to the private chat. I'll, I'll alert you at the 10-minute mark, and then you can wrap up kind of thing. It, and let me ask you, because instead of it really being a cross-examination, there are just some some issues that I'd like to bring up. And it, I, I'm really interested in hearing what both Jack and Hugh have to, to say about it. It's not necessarily that I'm trying to grill anybody on anything. Um, but do you mind if I if I kind of do it a little bit more that way? Sure. It, this is your time. Okay. All right. So um, one of the things, and I um, I'm a little bit in disagreement with you, Jack, on the issue of the Darcy memo not being important. I get what you're saying by that in terms of because you don't think it's, it's true. And I agree with that sentiment. But but my opinion is that I, I think that it's extremely important uh, that we get to the bottom of it uh, because uh, skeptics like to use uh, the radiocarbon dating, which gave a medieval date, and the Darcy memo in conjunction to corroborate each other. And then it's like, aha, see, these two pieces of independent evidence are showing or evidencing that the shroud has a medieval date. Now, that's a that's a pretty big bombshell. And and I I acknowledge that that's a huge bombshell, especially that the Darcy memo is coming from uh, a bishop, you know, that supposedly wrote it. Um, that that's a secondary issue that I want to get into. But, but so then, to me, it becomes you know, and as you've been doing, it becomes a question of. Are the claims contained in the Darcy memo true or not? And that's what it all revolves around. Is it true? If they're true, well, then, wow, that, that's a big problem for authenticists. But if it's false, then that's a real big problem, you know, in terms of that takes away this huge um, dagger that skeptics use against um, the Shroud's authenticity. And so, um, but anyway, it, it, uh, no, this, this question is a little bit more for, for Hugh, you know, whether the, the claim in the Darcy memo is that Poitier discovered that there was this artist that that created this this cloth that you know we now have in the Shroud of Turin, and when we take away all of the claims and all of the chatter, 
And as the scientists like to say, we separate the signal from the noise. What it really boils down to is, okay, we've got cloth. What evidence is there that this thing can be created by human hands? And all of the scientific evidence has been that um, nobody's been able, I mean, many people have tried, but nobody's been able to, to uh, recreate a cloth with all of these special images that we, or, or, or uh, aspects of it that we know it has. So you talk about this quem, uh, what's it called? Quem queritas? Queritis, yes. Queritis. Um, cloth that you think that this was, you know, created by human hands and you believe, am I correct, that you believe that that this cloth that has been created by human hands for the ceremony, that that is what we have in Turin, is that correct? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, the word believe is a very strong word, but I am of that opinion at the moment, yes. But then... You know, how how is it created so that Muller and Adler and Rogers and and with Larry Schwalbe's with the X-ray fluorescent? I mean, how with all of that evidence, how is it that this thing has been created when nobody can recreate it? Nobody sees any signs of I mean, it's dehydrated and oxidized cellulose that's created the image. Can I? Can I tell you a story which happened to me uh, about a week ago? Certainly. Uh, I was talking about the shroud amongst some ladies in a, in a tea uh, tea party, and they asked exactly this question. They said, uh, you know, why hasn't anybody done it? And because it was a tea party, there was a, 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 a cake tin, a metal cake tin. So I said, well, in this tin, there's a cake. Can you reproduce it for me? You're all cooks. And they went, yeah, let's have it. Let's have a look. I said, you can't open the tin. You can't look at it, but I can show you a photograph of it. And they went, well, we, how, we don't know what kind of cake it is. Oh, wait a minute. I said, I've also got three crumbs. And they said, oh, can we have a look at those? I said, no, but you can look at the description of the three crumbs. Now, can you make an exact copy of this cake? And they went, well, no, of course not. We want to look at it and take it, but take a slice and have a look, see how thick the icing is and all the rest of it. I said, sorry, you can't do that. And I think the people who are trying to, those people who have tried to make copies of the shroud are trying to, on on very, um, very limited evidence of the kind that a person who tried to copy something would want to have in front of them. Um, you know, if somebody wanted, was asked to make a perfect copy of the Mona Lisa or the I don't know, some marble statue, they'd want to go up to the Mona Lisa or the marble statue and dig around with it with their own investigation. It'd be no use asking. <clears throat> they would feel less confident that they had to follow exactly the findings of, uh, of a bunch of nuclear physicists. But we know, for example, with the, uh, the information that we've gotten from mm -hmm. Sturp's investigation, we do have a lot of information in terms of of what the shroud image is and yeah. what it was not and what you know the, the blood images are and what the body mm -hmm. images are i mean we know that um it it cannot have been created through iron oxide no we don't no um, the shroud's covered in iron oxide 
Uh, what we don't know is what, what we don't think with there's not enough iron oxide Correct. to produce an image. Uh, Correct. Maybe there was a lot of iron oxide and now it's been washed off. <coughs> we don't know whether the shroud's been washed or not. Well, okay, and that was something that you had mentioned. That was something that you had mentioned before with regard to this ceremonial quem queritas. Uh, uh, you were talking about maybe the image had gotten washed off, but the shroud has been in the fire of 1532 where it was doused with water, yet the image has not been washed. So what were you talking about? Well, the, 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 the paint was probably washed off before that. But where is there evidence of paint creating an image? I mean, we know that um, the paint's not very well distributed uh, across the shroud. the The variation in um, in the, uh, the amount of iron oxide found in various parts of the shroud is much much greater than the variation in, say, the calcium, which is found fairly evenly all over the shroud. Iron, calcium, and strontium is very evenly yes. spread. Well, the, the calcium and strontium is quite evenly spread, spread amongst the shroud. The, in the, the, the standard deviation uh, between the quantities of iron and calcium uh, of calcium and strontium measured is a very small percentage of the average, whereas the iron oxide, the standard deviation of the iron oxide, is a very large percentage of the average, showing that the um, distribution of the iron oxide is much more uneven than the distribution of the calcium. Well, I, all I know is that there there wasn't a correlation between iron of any sort and the image. Um, well, you don't know that, do you? You think that. Well, no, the, the x-ray fluorescence and the x-ray radiography, but I'm getting a thing from, <laughs> from Dale. Focus on the history. You Talk do about that. history. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, and don't forget to include Jack as well. So, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Um, but, but in terms of with with the, well, okay, that get the the the. Anyway, yes. oh, we don't know. We don't know how it was made, and that's fair enough. Because, um, because yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that if you can't account, and and given that nobody's been able to recreate the shroud, how why? Mm -hmm have gone through this extraordinary effort to create something for some ceremony at a little church no it's four meters long that's the length of the altar so it's a big church okay so it's a big church but, yep. but how what, what's the likelihood that somebody created something back then that people nowadays are just clueless in terms of trying to recreate and especially something I, I, that when it was first when it was first exhibited um in leary let alone uh, anywhere that it might have been beforehand and then later on when it was exhibited in uh, mons perhaps jack might remember this or liege up in belgium mm -hmm. where where um that chap zent flight commented on it the comments that there were but were how were how bright and clear it was. Now, are, are they? It's just possible that they were deluding themselves in that they were so surprised to see any image at all that mm -hmm. they called it bright and clear. Uh, but they definitely said that it was bright and clear, which is not something that people usually say about the shroud today. And that suggests that uh, something's happened to it in between it being exhibited 
in Belgium by um, Margaret de Charny, uh, and and how we see it today. Wasn't the question about Adler in terms of pres preserving the shroud that he was concerned that the back of the image would, with age, become darker to where the body image then would not show as much contrast? Yes, I think he was very worried about that. So, I mean, that could potentially be why the shroud was a little bit more noticeable because maybe the background of the cloth had not darkened. I don't think so. It's it's not very dark even today. Right. Um, okay, let me get on to... Um, One thing I just want to throw in here just to give Jack a little bit because he also... I remember you talking to me privately about the size of how small Leary was. So I just wanted to give you a chance, like... A, uh, you know, the population of Leary, does that have any impact? About well, I think that, <clears throat> I think when we get back to this question of cult, and uh, if, if you uh, consider that today, the population of Leary, I think I looked it up recently, it's about 108 people. Mm. And uh, back at the times that we're talking about, I doubt that it had much more than Jeffrey DeCharnay and his family. Uh, the Leary Cannons, and, you know, a few people. You know, you might have had maybe 10 households or something like that. But you're talking about a very, very small uh, group of people. And uh, that just gets back to what you and I were discussing before, the idea of a reference to a cult. If it was a cult of Mary, if that's all you were talking about in the vacuum at a time when the shroud has not even been shown there as yet, I don't see Bishop Henry referring to, uh, in the sense of a cult being a group of people uh, to the people who would be at Learay. It makes more sense if he's referring it to more to it in the terms of cult being a worship, the type of worship that's going on in Learay. But uh, since, since Hugh has uh, come around a bit on the uh, claim that it was a Mary cult to begin with, uh, I think I'm just taking Coles to Newcastle here. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, sorry about that, Teddy. I'll, oh, I'll, you have about five minutes to cross-examine, okay. and then I, I have was, I was wanting to to get into, um, well, and, and first to deliver a warning to anybody reading the English translation delivered by Thurston. That is an extremely deceptive document. I mean, in terms of how he eliminated the heading, which showed that it was um, not a formalized document. And there, there's been, uh, I think Jack has written about, or was it, was it you, Jack, that's written about how it's like a Frankenstein document where these two drafts, right. the, the alleged Darcy memo have been put together and manipulated also, I, I want to point out, for example, because everybody talks about how the Darcy memo, there is this cunningly painted image done by an artist that was discovered and all this. Well, okay, we look at, that's Thurston's translation, cunningly painted. Well, when we look at the Latin for that, the mm. word is I'm probably going to butcher the word, artificios. And that can mean, of course, like it sounds like in English, artificial as opposed to natural. It can also mean skillfully or artistically painted. So for all we know, this could have just been one of the 
over 52 documented copies of the shroud that was that was painted by somebody but it, it doesn't say anything about cunningly painted and then this whole her uh, herbert thurston uses the term um that it was that the artist painted it using a clever sleight of hand well okay that's a pretty nefarious sounding thing to write except the latin says in quo subtilly modo depicta which subtilly even to the english subtle which of course instead of clever side of sleight of hand that can just mean a simple depiction or a subtle depiction so you know I, um <clears throat> no 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 Sub subtilis had a very um specific meaning um in in latin as indeed it did in medieval english well not and according it, it to means, the dictionary that i got no, these definitions well, no, what it means now is different from what it meant in in uh, in shakespearean times and in the 14th century uh, it, it means underhand well i think we know that words can often have more than one meaning uh, yes, but if, if throughout uh, in the Bible, for example, we the um, the devil is called subtle, subtilis, okay. all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't mean in that case simple. Um, I know, but no, I don't it, think that back then it, means, it definitely were, was crafty. I don't know that words back then were just limited to one definition. Language is pretty pretty rich. Anyway, my point is just that people need to be careful with reading the Thurston um, English translation and look up because a lot of I, I found that a lot of those words can have multiple meanings, some of which seem very nefarious and some which um, do not. I'm curious, do y'all, um, so do y'all think that Darcy even really wrote this memo or was it written by, I mean, because on the, when Chevalier he, uh, he, there, there was. Well, we know that there was a refined draft of the memo, and then there was a draft of the memo that was heavily marked up. But the the refined draft of the memo on the back of it has the name of Guillaume Fulcois, F-U-L-C-O-I-S, um, who is the one presumably who wrote it. Now, was this man a scribe where he was just maybe transcribing what Bishop Darcy was telling him to write? Or, for example, I was a, uh, a judicial law clerk, and many times I was given the task of, okay, look over this and, and write an opinion, and then I give that to the judge, and the judge decides whether he like if he likes it, he'll just sign off on it. And if he doesn't, he might make changes or, you know, of course, I've never had one just totally trashed. But, um, you know, it, it could very well be, given this this name that's on the back, that Darcy may have never even written this. And um, and we don't know whether he would have endorsed everything that was that was being said in supposedly his name. So I'm, I'm curious, do y'all think, what do y'all think about this? How did you spell well, his name again? 
Uh, Fulqua, F-U-L-C-O-I-S, and the first name is Guillaume, G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E. And his name was on the back of the refined draft mm -hmm. of the memo, of the two memos. And, you know, people, say, people frequently say, oh, it was likely a scribe. But, I mean, a scribe usually is copying you know, like here's here's a piece of work, and then a scribe is making multiple copies. So I'm wondering. <laughs> it's a different kind of scribe, uh, Teddy. I think they're referring to this. These documents were discovered by Hilda Leinen back around 1993, and I think she's the one that uh, did the assessment that this was a scribe. I don't know whether she actually found this man in history, but uh, her explanation was, and it makes perfect sense that uh, uh, what would happen, especially if you were writing to a pope, there were these scribes who were expert in turning what you're saying to a pope into all the formalities that you would have to put before the, the pope. For example, in the first in, um, version you're talking about, it kind of starts out and he doesn't have it like uh, your holiness scraping before you on my knees and giving you all a due obeisance and things like that. There were these kind of things that had to be uh, put in these kind of communications. So uh, why it looks like it did not go to the Pope, and even uh, uh, Nicolotti, after he goes through all the arguments, um, the most convincing arguments of why it did, he ends up conceding that there's no definite proof that it went to the Pope. If you, if you look at that in endorsement that that has, it basically says, uh, this is the story of the cloth of Lyrae, which I intend to write to His Holiness the Pope. Um, now, why, why does a person um, uh, prepare a document and then put that as the caption? Is he reminding himself that uh, he intends to send this to the Pope? What happens is that if he decides to send this, he's not going to send it directly to the Pope. He's going to send it to one of these scribes who are experts then at, at turning these uh, documents into formal church documents with all of the uh, things that are required. So the combination of him saying, I intend to send it, and the uh, name of this man, it's the message he would be sending to the scribe. He'd be saying, uh, this is the letter that I intend to send to the Pope. Here, you take care of it and, uh, you know, do what has to be done uh, to it. In his rough draft, the second draft that was uh, marked up where he's got marginal notes that say the cot you know, vacate this, that, and the other thing. It's clear that uh, this is something that he's marking up, he's bracketing terms that he thinks uh, might be too offensive to the Pope. Um, but uh, we get the Darcy Memorandum, the form that we get of it, uh, is uh, basically the clean copy uh, that is there, but it still tells itself to be uh, something that uh, is only intended to be sent to them. And if he does intend to send it to him, this is probably the name of the scribe that he is going to use uh, to formalize it for the Pope's review. Gotcha. So, so you're saying that the scribe is more to just kind of fancy up the uh, the paperwork so that it's ready to be. At all, at all the salutations, uh, there are these terms. It has to have an, an initialo. Um, but it has to have a formal greeting. It has to have the name of the addressee. It has to be dated. Uh, it has to have the sign off, you know, I, all this. Uh, and you can see that the Darcy memo is kind of the, 
the sum and substance of what he wants to say to the Pope on the substantive matters, but it's not uh, all the uh, floral things that would be put uh, into it before it would reach the Pope. There's a lot of backside kissing that has to be done uh, in these communications. Awesome. All right, cool. So at this point, uh, I think I'm going to turn it. We have three audience questions. Uh, so I just want to make sure we fit those in. And Can I get oh, one big thing that's like really, really big? One quick thing? Okay. Uh, all right, cool. One last quick thing. Right. So we go ahead. But. Okay. Um, this has to do with something that I found to be very telling. I, I'm always fascinated by um, psychology and psychological reasons why people do or do not do things. And I find it very interesting that in the Darcy memo, Dar you know, let's, let's just assume it's a given that Darcy did in fact write it. He talks about how he was being told by others that he, Darcy, was being made to look like a laughing stock by allowing the abuse, meaning the display of the shroud in the Leary Church, to continue. And so I think that's an important factor to consider that there were a lot of pressures, social pressures on, on Darcy. And especially if you take into account that Darcy um, firmly believed that this could not be the shroud of Christ, not based on what he was seeing, but just because the gospels in his mind, obviously wasn't interpreting Galatians 3.1 as Jack and I do, um, that it, that there is a reference to it. Um, but, you know, he believes that this cannot exist. And so, I, I mean, I think that actually maybe um, his heart was pure in the sense that he thought he was doing right by trying to, to stop the, what he thought was a fake from being worshipped in this divine cult of this sort you know, where people are, are, because if you believe that that's really Christ's blood, then I, I think you can technically worship it because it's part of God. Um, but so it's, it's just interesting to me. And then the pulling back, the not having sent it. Now, did he not send it because he was threatened with excommunication? Or did he not send it because this was when Jeffrey DeSharney was um, having this shroud displayed in the Leary Church? That was only 34 or so years ago. So there were still likely people who would have known back then if there was all this hubbub about this artist and, and this fraud, this... I mean, there's no evidence of, of these investigations that Darcy references in his memo. He's he's talking about oh, there were all these investigations, but here, there's there's no there's no evidence of this. Yet, if if Darcy had published this letter and sent it, then there's the question of whether witnesses who were still alive back then 34 years ago, some people who might've been in their seventies or eighties might've said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't true. There weren't any investigations. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, 
what do y'all think in terms of just the potential psychological motivations that may have been going on with Darcy and and, and why he did or did not do uh, what he did? <laughs> well, I don't think Darcy sent the letter because he was under a sentence of perpetual silence. That that memo itself is a violation of pet, perpetual silence in its strictest sense. The Pope had told him, you are not to speak anymore about this matter. And here he is sitting down and he's writing about this matter and in far more detail than he ever said it before. I think you know, Teddy, that if you're under a court order, before you violate that order, you have to go and have the motion, you have to file a motion to have it vacated or modified. And that's what Darcy's position, petition to the Pope should have been. Please modify the uh, sentence of perpetual silence so I can write you on this. Well, Instead, could maybe have uh, Darcy written this before he was he received the notice to be? No, he says in the memo, I understand that you have issued an excommunication against me if I violate this silence. So he knows that. And so he's, uh, you know, he's proceeding at his risk. And ultimately, uh, it's the, the major reason why I don't think he sent this off. I think he was right on the edge through what he had done up to that time of being removed as bishop. And, you know, he, he wasn't going to do that at the time. I don't think that he uh, would have been concerned about being embarrassed because once the bull was issued and if uh, people came and said, why are you allowing this to happen in Luray? He would simply say the Pope has ordered it. There's a papal bull. I, there's nothing I can do about it now. So I don't know, you know, that he would have any kind of uh, reluctance or embarrassment about it. Interesting. And on, I think you, you were sort of arguing against yourself with this, um, the inquiry of, of, um, of Bishop Henry, because you, you first of all said, well, we've got absolutely no records of the inquiry, which is perfectly true, but then we haven't got records of many things. But then you said, well, surely there would be people who remember the records and they would have spoken out. And the answer is, well. Just if there was an inquiry. Yes, if there was an inquiry, they would have uh, spoken out uh, and they didn't. But then why should they? If they agreed with Darcy, there would be no reason for them to speak out. But they never saw Darcy's memo or, or his letter. No, no. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it was, it doesn't mean that there was or there wasn't. But I mean, they might have come out of the woodworks had they seen that Darcy was making a claim that there were these investigations. You mean they might have come out, they might have come out and said, no, there wasn't. Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, no, we it, don't know. I mean, that's thing, so. that could be a reason why he didn't ever make it public. I think we should keep in mind that Darcy was a lawyer before he was ever a priest. That was his background. And, uh, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're going to make out a case, which is basically what his memo was to make out a case to the Pope, you're going to invoke the evidence that you have. You're not just going to make bold, unsupported charges. And so this is the great mystery about it. If there was a counsel held or there was an investigation, uh, he could point to a single witness. Uh, a single advisor who was a part of that and say, um, you know, if you need any further proof, uh, you, you can call on, you know, this great man of the law or this great uh, theological um, uh, advisor that happened at the time. It's one of the things that uh, uh, damages the veracity, the credibility and veracity uh, of that memorandum, especially coming from 
uh, a lawyer, somebody who practiced law before he, he was and in probably the Probably even back then, they may have had the rule where there's what we call hearsay within hearsay, because Darcy is saying that Poitier said that an artist who's not even named said. So you've got double hearsay. Well, it's doubtful he ever spoke to Poitier because Poitier died in 1370 and Darcy came to uh, Troyes in 1373. So it's kind of doubtful that he he talked to Poitier, which would make it double hearsay. So you're probably into at least triple or quadruple hearsay in terms of what uh, somebody heard somebody say. Probably and, based on, on nothing but sheer rumor. Yeah, I mean, that's giving him the benefit of the doubt that he actually heard this and people actually said it. But there's also the possibility that he made it up out of whole cloth or he exaggerated. We, we just don't know. That's why I think... Um, you have to do what we tried to do a little bit here today, and that is look at the uh, substantive veracity of what he's saying as opposed to the uh, surrounding circumstances. When it gets to the surrounding circumstances, you know, we're making a lot of guesses and suppositions, and we're trying to bring historical context to that. But I think that the, um, the language itself in the memo uh, leaves itself uh, open to a lot of attack. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, cool. I do want to get to the audience because I let that go on a little bit longer because this isn't relevant and a couple of questions aren't really relevant to today's topic. But the first one is, and this one comes from our mutual friend, Joe Marino. Um, so he says, Hugh emphasized the opinions when the Shroud historically surfaced. What about subsequent actions by popes? Over 30 popes have spoken in favor of the Shroud. Does this not count for anything? So we'll start with Hugh and then we'll get Jack's take. Um, I suppose, in a word, no. Um, and this would be following Jack's argument, really, is that whether a person thinks the shroud was real or not doesn't necessarily provide evidence for whether it is real or not. And <clears throat> we've been talking about the whole of the correspondence around the uh, 13th, 14th century, uh, 14th, 15th century, as if... Uh, as if these people, you know, some people said it was real, some people said it wasn't. Well, they didn't actually know whether it was real or not because they were simple chaps without spectrometers. And in fact, none of the 30 popes were, uh, have had spectrometers either. I think Jack probably agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, it's funny because I, I do agree with that. Uh, uh, again, focusing on um, that question that Joe raises here, uh, he says, does this not count for anything? I think he's saying, does it not count for something improving authenticity? And uh, I really don't think that it does. I mean, I guess I could say if I was a non-authenticist, uh, we've had some recent popes here who uh, don't want to call it a relic. They want to call it an icon. Uh, you know, does that mean anything in terms of what all it really tells you is what their opinions are based on the, the information that they're processing just like we're processing information, and if we're going to do if we're going to do a historical analysis, then we're we all we can do is kind of uh, uh, look at what the historical uh, records tell us, and even what we've been discussing today, uh, when it comes to the opinions that people hold um, about the shroud's authenticity, I think they mean kind of next to nothing, in my opinion. However, if they act, if, if a pope is allowing the shroud to be venerated, uh, 
if the, the Pope is approving rituals that are accorded to relics, then I think we find out that perhaps that Pope or that Bishop had a belief at that time that the shroud was real. But we don't know that today with all the scientific equipment we have. How in the world did these people really know about it uh, in, you know, the 1340s, 50s, 80s? No way. One of the things is that, you know, not all opinions are, are equal. And we have to remember that with uh, any Pope Clement, he was what the nephew of Robert de Geneva, or no, or was that his name? He was the nephew of the guy that was married, the man that was married to uh, Jean de Vergy, so Jeffrey's mm -hmm. mother. So, I mean, I would be really shocked if, if Pope Clement had not personally seen the shroud for himself. Now, if he hadn't, he was probably at least getting very reliable communications from his uh, from his uncle that it was that it was you know very much you know describing it and and having his uncle affirm the the authenticity of it. So I mean, I don't I, you know many popes may have said things about it, but um, you know I think that. The anti-Pope Clement had um, had some, I think, probably good, very good knowledge about the cloth itself from people who were, you know, having it in their possession. I think we do have to uh, make a distinction between uh, his having information about the first series of trial exhibitions, which I think he did through those sources you're talking about. I take Joe's question here as asking, as answering, uh, can we know anything? through the opinions that these people hold on authenticity. And I don't think uh, uh, Jeffrey DeCharnay's widow, if she held an opinion on authenticity, it mattered. Uh, I don't think if her husband thought it was authentic, it mattered, he could be right or wrong. And I think all this knowledge that uh, Pope Clement the Seventh is hiding under his uh, uh, excerpt scientio ruling I don't think he's hiding some secret knowledge that the shroud is authentic. I don't think any of us have that secret knowledge at this time. This is what the, the debate is entirely about. But, uh, and I'm just uh, sorry, I guess I've lived a lifetime in which uh, maybe certain people's opinions are more informed uh, than uh, other people. But I would want to know what makes them more uh, informed. Uh, you know, if if my information is not what I know myself, but I'm getting it because I know a relative or somebody is going to tell me something, that doesn't uh, make me believe that it's any more authentic. Uh, that, that's why I said at the get-go that I think that uh, this discussion uh, isn't necessarily going to take us so far to the issue of authenticity itself. But I think that it helps uh, to know how people were uh, treating things at the time. And uh, I'd just like to make one last uh, kind of correction, if it is. Um, in terms of what I said, Teddy, about the, um, the importance of the Darcy memo, uh, that was in the context of uh, my saying that um, Hugh has the burden of proof on this uh, uh, issue of it being a medieval uh, object. And that I think for his case, it's kind of meaningless. I think it has been rendered meaningless. I do think that it has a lot of meaning 
in the history of the shroud. And I think we tried today to show how in some ways it helps prove the authenticity of the shroud. But I think it, it, it's getting more and more uh, irrelevant to the case that non-authenticists like Hugh are to make their case for non-authenticity. I think they are pushed much more over to the scientific side uh, and the carbon dating than, than the history. Right, ultimately, science is, is what tells you whether the, the, the claim in the Darcy memo can be true. If it's a painting or if you want to say some other type of artwork, not using paint, but you have to show that it can be done because if, if all of these people have attempted to recreate it and they fail, which that's been the case so far, um, then we have no basis to think that it, it can be recreated. Okay. All right. Um, okay. In the interest in the interest of time, and because the other questions aren't related to today's topics, uh, I'm just going to skip those for the time being, and I'm going to just turn it to the two debaters. You know, this is about your guys' views on the medieval documents, and maybe you know, three three to five minute kind of closing statements. Um, and we started first with Hugh, so Hugh will get the last word. So Jack, we'll start with you for a quick closing word. Okay. Well, I like I like to um, believe that you know this uh, exercise has been productive in some way, uh, has some kind of meaning. I don't really think that if you approach the subject uh, from a somewhat academic standpoint, that Hugh and I are really that far apart when it really uh, comes to a lot of things. Um, but we're human beings, and uh, you know our personal beliefs. Uh, on authenticity sometimes drive, I think, what we're saying and how we view things. Um, I just, I look at this evidence from this era uh, as uh, more or less proving that the shroud uh, came into Lyrae from Geoffrey de Charny and uh, that there's a perfectly uh, logical historical uh, explanation for why and how Jeffrey de Charnay got the shroud, and almost all these 13 hypotheses that have been written in the last 120 years, they all connect the shroud to the shroud of Constantinople. And uh, that, that kind of takes the Leary shroud in the vacuum that the non-authenticist non would bring it as a creature of you know, the Leary days. It takes it back to Constantinople. And then you'd have to look beyond that. How long had it been in Constantinople? Where did it come from? And there is a path. You can choose whatever path you wish to choose. The one that I proposed, the one that Ian Wilson has proposed, um, bits and pieces of, of either or both, something else. Uh, and then that trail can be taken back to the first century, all the way back to this conversation we had on Galatians. Uh, and there is an argument then to be made, a historical argument to be made for the shroud being authentic and being the real shroud of Jesus. Um, as I said, I, I think the non-authenticists for now have the high ground on the science because they've got the scientific test. And then it's a matter of opinion whether any of these things that are have been put out adequately um, discredit either individually or cumulatively discredit that, or whether someone like Bob Rucker has come up with a you know perfectly reasonable, if not provable, theory of why the tests could be off. Um, uh, 
but uh, you know that that's kind of where it takes us, and I'm just hoping that uh, you know this is not. I've, I've said this a number of times, a number of conferences that I appeared at. It's been my attitude about this. Uh, we find people on both sides of this issue kind of spitting at each other all the time, and they're critical of each other all the time. They look down sometimes at each other. I, I think I could learn more about this subject than I do by talking to someone like Hugh Farry. Um, because I think he does his homework and, you know, uh, he has his opinions. And you can see from the show, as far as I'm concerned, he can modify his opinions. If you give him some evidence that he hasn't considered before, he can modify his opinions. And I can tell you, if he put something before me, uh, I might modify my opinions. And then maybe there's a chance then of uh, a better chance of getting to the truth, which hopefully is what we're all trying to get to in the end. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Hugh, uh, you... You get the last word for today. Uh, go ahead and give your three to five minute closing. Well, I'd, I, yeah, I'd like to say that this is this is the kind of debate that I really enjoy because I'm talking to people who can not only um, assess the evidence that I think I've got, but I've also got you know a whole list of things that I've now got to go up and 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 check for myself. Um, I think one of the things that I'm very happy to hold is that. I'm of the opinion that the evidence sways me to think that the Shroud is medieval and I'm not taken in by the adventures of the Byzantine emperors. But I shall go back to study the life of John V, which I didn't know a lot about until Jack introduced him. I shall spend a lot of time trying to track down, probably via Andrea himself, who, who's a, a man I um, correspond with quite a lot, that, um, that bull of, of 1357 about the extra indulgences. I shall try and find out a little bit more about Robert de Kayak. Um, I've already been working on, on the life of Darcy, who was a <clears throat> local to Troy all his life um, and was uh, so would have known about the uh, adventures in Leary, at least as, uh, as, as a young man, if, if not... Um, if not as a child. So these, 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 these things are all extra evidence and Jack's right. I might suddenly go, well, that's an absolute stumper and um, I'm forced to change my mind. Awesome, awesome. All right, cool. Well, I just wanna say thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. It is what the Shroud Wars is all about, you know, progressing towards truth and getting into those details and stuff. So thank you so much to, to Jack, Hugh and Teddy for coming on and contributing. I hope you guys enjoyed it on your end. Thank you. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, as I always say, you guys are always welcome back anytime for any topics and stuff like that. But um, just for the audience, what I have coming up tomorrow, again, as a live show, uh, it's another Shroudware show. Michael Kowalski, the, the head of the um, British uh, the BSTS newsletter Ooh. there, uh, will be on tomorrow. And he's got new findings and information related to the carbon-14 dating and looking a lot at the politics around the carbon 14, which is something that I, apart from a, a show with Joe Marino, I, I didn't really, I don't really focus on the politics. So that's something that's crucially important to consider as well, I think. Um, so yeah, that's what we have coming up and thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you, Dale. Thanks for letting us in. Nice talking with y'all. No worries. All right.